Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about dealing with challenges, dealing with hard times, and hopefully in the end of the day, how to come out stronger from those challenges. We are also going to learn some interesting lessons from the lobster. Joining us today are a number of noted guests. We are going to start by speaking with the world-renowned educator and lecturer, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. It's always a pleasure speaking with Rabbi Jacobson. And then we are going to talk with Rabbi Aviad Goldvicht. He is a Rav, he is a businessman, and he also serves as a rabbi in the IDF, and we will have a number of interesting halachic questions to ask him. And then we will speak with Dr. Jacob Friedman. He is a noted psychiatrist. He's an amazing speaker and also author, two-time author. He's putting out his second book right now as we speak. And we will then culminate the show with Mrs. Batya Wadowski. She is a social worker and a volunteer for the psychotrauma unit of Ichud Hatsala. And at the way, way end of the show, we're going to have a quick recap, overview, takeaways, thoughts that will summarize and bring together the entire show. Recently, I was speaking with a friend. He's visiting Eretz Yisrael from Flatbush, and he made the following comment. He has a sense that the sentiment in Israel is fairly sad, negative, and depressed. And I said, well, how is it in New York? And he said, I think it's similar. I think it's similar. So I said, what's the difference? And he said, I think there's maybe a difference in that Israel, the sadness, the sentiment, the negativity is somewhat focused more on the war and the captives. And in Chutzlar, it's also that but because of all the rampant anti-Semitism and other reasons as well. So that is something that we're going to talk about today. What's causing us trauma? Is it the war? Is it the camp? Is it the anti-Semitism? Is it something else? We'll talk about the students from outside of Israel who are studying in yeshivas and seminaries. How are they handling the war here in Israel? We'll talk about how can we turn our current plight? How can we dig out of the rut and turn it into a growth opportunity? And as part of the trauma, we'll have an interesting discussion. Should we be following the news avidly? Should we be looking at images from October 7th and thereafterward? And Amir Tashem, we will come out with some sense of how we can grow from the current trauma that we are experiencing. In that regard, I'm going to take a step back to Parshas Vayera. We'll get back to Parshas Bo, but let's start to, with Parshas Vayera. There's a pasuk, an interesting but cryptic pasuk that says as follows: "Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe al Aaron." Hakadosh Baruch says to Moshe, says to Aaron, and he commands them: "Vayitzavem el bnei Yisrael al Paro melechivitz mitzrayim." He commands them regarding Klal Yisrael and Paro to take Klal Yisrael out of Egypt. And the question is, we can understand why Moshe Aaron command Paro to let Klal Yisrael out of Mitzrayim, but why do Klal Yisrael? Have, why do they have to be convinced to let themselves? out of Mitzrayim. They should be the first online to want to get out. So why do we have to persuade Kalal Yisrael to get going and leave Mitzrayim? So Rabbi Mordechai Kamenetsky, he answers this question with the following story. There was a poor European Jew and his family, and they labored long and hard to eke out a living, with the vast majority of the prophets going to none other than the cruel Poritz, the wealthy landlord who owned their land and home. They survived thanks to the eggs laid by their few chickens and the milk provided by their aging cow. But that was life, and they became accustomed to it, and they accepted it, and did not question it. They had no option. One day, the husband returned home from the local market, visibly upset, and his wife 
fearing the worst, asked what happened. And he told her the terrible news. The talk in the market is that the Mashiach is coming soon. When he gets here, he's going to take all of us to the land of Israel. And then what will become of us? We're going to leave the porrits, the land that we cultivate, that we get a little bit from, and the eggs from our chickens and the milk from our cow. How are we going to live without the life that we live? This terrible life that they live. How are we going to live without it? His wife, a woman of great faith, reassured him, I quote, don't worry. Hashem is merciful and he never abandons his people. He saved us from Paro and Egypt. He protected us from Haman in Persia. And he has watched over us ever since throughout this difficult exile. My dear husband, he will surely save us from this Mashiach as well. And Rabbi Kamenetsky explains as follows, Klal Yisrael, years and years, decades, hundreds of years, they had been crushed by oppression, and they were too broken to even think of freedom. Slavery was all they knew. They were like that harassed, impoverished couple in old Europe. They clung to what they knew. It was familiar to them, even though it was a terrible life. And accordingly, just like that couple, they need to be convinced the Mashiach is a good thing. It's not a terrible thing. So to call Yisrael, they had become acclimated and accustomed to that life, that terrible life, but nonetheless, they were used to it. And Moshe and Aaron had to speak to Klal Yisrael and urge them, prepare, we're getting out of here. And so many times in life when we can globalize the message here, we get used to things that are not good for us. And it may be small things, a sloppy roommate, a mean landlord, a dead-end job, an untreated medical problem, or so much more severe than that, so much more serious than that, and we forget our dreams, and we forget who we really want to be. And ironically, change, even for the better, becomes our worst enemy. And we need to take a step back, and we need to confront our inner Paro and tell him, let my people go. We need to make a change. We need to get out of our rut. Let's fast forward. Parsha's bow, the first mitzvah that was given to Klal Yisrael as a whole. Hachodesh hazelachem Rosh Chodashim. Rosh Chodesh, Klal Yisrael uses the lunar calendar. And in fact, the Medrash tells us that the moon reflects Klal Yisrael. There's an amazing character trait of the moon that it waxes and wanes. It goes stronger and it gets weaker. And then it disappears, and you think it's not coming back, but it always does. And it comes back with the vengeance, and the same thing with quality Israel. We wax and we wane, and we have challenges and difficulties, but we always grow, and we always come back. And we always come back with the vengeance even stronger than before. My hope and prayer is that some of the lessons that we learn from this show can really assist us in understanding the challenges, the difficulties that we are having, and also help us overcome them and get back on track, dig out of that rut, and hopefully turn the current challenging times and trauma into a growth opportunity. Before we go to our guest, we'll hear the riddle or riddles of the week. The first of the riddles goes like this. It's based on the Makkah, the plague of Choshech. Vahi Choshech alert Mitzrayim, the Chidah, brings the Chazal, who explains as follows, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu brought three of the days, the first three of the days, in order for those Jews who did not want to leave Mitzrayim, that they would die. 
in Mitzrayim, and they'd be able to be buried at that point without the Mitzrayim seeing it. The Mitzrayim saw it. If the Egyptians saw it, they would say, oh, Paul Yisrael is being punished as well. It's not only us. And as we know, the drosh of a chamushim yatsu b'nei shomer Yisraelim that only a fifth, only twenty percent of Klal Yisrael got at the other four fifths passed away because they wanted to stay in Mitzrayim. They passed away and they were buried in Eretz Mitzrayim. They were buried in Egypt. The Zohar says as follows: is brought by the Chida. The Chida brings to the Zohar that says the same thing will happen Rachman Litzlan in the future Geula in the future redemption when we come back to Eretz Yisrael. But it's not only going to be three days that the those of Kal Yisrael who reshaim the evil that aren't going to be Zohar, don't want to come back to Eretz Yisrael, but rather than three days that they will pass away in, it will be 15 days. This is the Zohar. The Chida quotes this as a Zohar. It's going to be 15 days, apparently, because three days is not going to be enough. And the question is as follows. I hope there's an answer out there. Why 15 days in particular? If we can imagine. Big Musar from this. The Mashiach is going to come. He's going to be blowing the great chauffeur. Eliyahu is going to come and he's going to make us enthusiastic about tshuva. And nonetheless, a vast number of Jews are going to say, we don't want to go. 15 days is that they will Rahman al Islam pass away. Why 15? Why not 14? Why not 16? Let's see if there's an answer for that question. Another question, another research project. I don't think that this is a really a riddle, but a research project. I'd love to hear your opinions on this. Rav Moshe Sternbach came out with a psaq, at least for his shul. His opinion is that we should be blowing shofar. It came out, came out before Hanukkah. And he said we should be blowing shofar in the mornings at Shachrists. And initially he said on Monday and Thursday before the Hurachum blow shofar because of the terrible situation situation in Eretz Yisrael, and he thought, for the most part, it is going to be a mitzvah midoraisa, maybe not, but he thought fundamentally it was, and he has a calculus that we should blow, and have in mind that if it's not a mitzvah, then it's just a blow, it's not the shofar, it won't count, so there's not a problem of adding mitzvahs. The question is as follows, let's find some, of course, that we can argue that it is a mitzvah midoraisa to be blowing shofar right now, and on the other hand, we actually instituted in the minion that I daven in to blow on Monday and Thursday. Initially, he said Monday and Thursday, and then he expanded it that we should blow every day. So we continue be on Monday and Thursday before Buhurachum, before Tachanun. And the question is, somebody said he's uncomfortable with the blowing of the shofar. So let's see the opposite side of things, because most places are not blowing. So it's not mikubal, it's not acceptable, it's not been accepted, it's not done here and there. Let's see the argument on both sides of it. Blow shofar or not blowing shofar nowadays because of the sorrow of the Tsar that we are currently in in Eretz Yisrael. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America our number is 732-806-8700. In England it's 44, that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael it's uh, 02-372-0304. And now, let's go and hear from our guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is a world-renowned educator and lecturer who travels the globe educating and inspiring numerous Jews, including myself. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for joining us. My honor and my pleasure. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to have you always. Rabbi Jacobson, let me start with this. I was speaking with a friend recently, and he said he was visiting from the United States of America, New York, and he said this sentiment is uh, somewhat sad in Eretz Yisrael, and that that was his take, obviously correct. And he said it's a little bit different where he is um, in in New York. He thought people are definitely a little bit depressed and and uh, sad, but they're worried about more things, anti-Semitism, the war, and this and that. Wanted to get your take on what sentiment, what are you seeing out there? I know you were in London recently, and uh, what would you say people are feeling right now? I think... Uh... You know, obviously, I can't speak for everybody, uh, but I think what I'm hearing from a lot of people, so it's maybe more of an anecdotal response just from conversations with people, emails I'm getting, uh, various communities I've been lecturing in, uh, countries or cities I've visited, is there is certainly a state of alertness that has uh, awakened many, many of our brothers and sisters especially since October 7th, 2023, there is certainly depression, there's certainly sadness by some people, but I would say by many others, I wouldn't call it depression, but I would call it rather uh, resilience and resolve and in a way, empowerment and inspiration. You know, when you see some of the clips or you speak to some of the soldiers entering Gaza, leaving Gaza, facing such adversity, such crises, such bloodshed, such violence, such death, and yet you see a uh, uh, a strength and a faith and a sense of dedication and unwavering conviction. I think in many ways, it's triggering very, very powerful and healthy chords in the Jewish people. Sure, there's ambivalence, there's uh, there's concern, there's deep grief and sadness. I know many people who told me that they <laughs> they can't sleep the night anymore. <laughs> They're waking up in the middle of the night uh, with all types of various thoughts. But I also think that there is a very deep sense of belonging and connection and resolve and empowerment and resilience that has been triggered uh, in the Jewish psyche. Uh, Right. We definitely do see that mixture of sadness and resilience. And those two, what we could view as conflicting emotions, definitely are coexisting together in us. So that's a, that's a very interesting and important point. What, you know, there's an think? expression in Zoya, you know, there's a beautiful expression in Zoya. Rabbi Shem Ben Yechai was teaching the secrets of Torah about the Beis Hamikdash and the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. And his son, Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon, buried near him in Miran, says... The two ventricles of my heart have etched in them. Tears on one side of the heart and joy on the other side of the heart. He was so joyous from the revelations of his father, his father's terror, but he was also so sad because he understood what the destruction meant. And I think it's so true of Jewish history. You know, we cry, we go to funerals, uh, we go to shiva houses, we speak to people who have lost their loved ones and their lives have changed forever, widows and children and parents and siblings and families and extended families and communities and the whole nation. I mean, how many thousands of families are now in mourning? And we cry with, we cry with every Jewish soldier that was killed and we cry with every hostage that was killed and we cry with the families of the slain whose lives will be changed and are changed forever. And precisely at those moments, it's also there's a joy of what nation we belong to, of who our people are, 
of what we represent, what we embody, and, and simply the love and the infinite light embedded in the Jewish soul. And you say, Absolutely. Absolutely agree. If we could put on our psychology hats for a little bit, because obviously there's a lot of trauma going on from the war, from the related anti-Semitism, and the anti-Semitism indeed pre-existed the war. It just came to the fore because of the war. Where do you think we go from here? There's a phrase, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and there's also another phrase, less known, post-traumatic growth. So which direction do you think we go in and how can we get there? Obviously, we want to focus on the growth, not the trauma. Yeah. I once saw a, a powerful and beautiful in interpretation from Rabbi Yosha Ber Soloveitchik, that's all. He, he said it in, a, in one of his drushes, and he said that the Gemara says in Menachist, Avchavtas, about Rabbi Akiva, that Rabbi Akiva, Moshe Rabbeinu came up to Harsina and he saw that Hashem was drawing those little tagim, those little zayins, those little thorns on the top of the letters of the Sefer Torah. And he, Moshe said, who is this for? And he said, Akiva, Rabbi Akiva ben Yosef, he's going to expound on this. And the expression that Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu is, Al kol Rabbi Akiva is going to take every one of these little zines, these little thorns, these little tiny lines on top of the letters, which nobody really comprehends what is their significance. And on each one, he's going to expound and develop mountains and mountains of halacha. So Rabbi Yosheber Salavechik said something powerful. He said, the word koitz, here is really a metaphor for the little Zion on top of the letters. We call it a tag. It looks like a thorn. That's what it says, kites. But kites really means a thorn. He says, Rabbi Akiva lived through the destruction of the second base Amikdash. And we have to remember that till the Holocaust, that was a watershed moment where it seemed that everything is done. Everything is over. You know, the Jewish promise, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, certainly the commonwealth and, and, and the holy land. Jewish life became so cheap that a Jewish slave you can purchase for less than a dollar, as Josephus describes it in his books. So you're talking about a moment when everything seemed lost. And Rabbi Akiva was the leader at the time, and he experienced the pain firsthand. He was murdered and executed by the Romans, as the Gemara says in Brachas. Rabbi Yashabeh said, Hashem was telling Moshe Rabbeinu something about Rabbi Akiva. I'll call kites for kites. Every thorn, every thorn that the Romans perforated the Jewish soul with, the Jewish psyche, the Jewish body, including Rabbi Akiva himself. What was his approach? I'll call kites for kites. Rabbi Akiva said, from every thorn, we're going to use the thorn as a catalyst, as a springboard for to build mounds and mounds of halacha, meaning to use it as a springboard for rejuvenation, for a new renaissance, for a resurrection of the Jewish spirits, for unprecedented growth. And this was not because Rabbi Akiva didn't know how painful it is. And I think it's with this very, very approach that we need to look at today's time because the trauma obviously is overwhelming. The PTSD is very, very natural. You know, there's going to be, there's a new generation of orphans. There's a new, there's a new generation of Yusayimim. You know, think about it, right? We hear about a soldier that was killed, a wounded soldier that succumbed to his or her wounds. And by the way, we don't even hear about all the wounded. You know, we hear about those who were killed. What about those who were wounded? Who thousands, lost, thousands. Lost an arm, right? Who, who, who now experience disability and the entire trajectory of their life and their family's life. It's changed. It's changed. It's changed forever. Now, how much pain, how many people's lives were shattered or completely transformed to a point of not recognizing the, the previous life from their new life post-October 7th, 2023. And nobody can even fathom how much grief there is, how much sadness. Children who are either completely orphaned or growing up without one of the parents, siblings, spouses, of course, parents. I mean, 
it's all, it's all so, so very obvious. And I think if we try to, you know, make sense out of it and try to, you know, define it using logical constructs and mathematic, mathematical equations, we will completely, completely fail. I think this is a moment to open ourselves up to the paradox of life, to the mystery of life, to the fact that Hashem and His Ashgach is something that we cannot define intellectually, that we can comprehend, that we can assimilate into our regular system of an intellectual and an emotional ego. And this is really where the deepest reservoirs of the Jewish soul come out. Where Rabbi Akiva comes to us and says, that what's going to happen in the Jewish world is, and we have seen this throughout Jewish history, and it's one of the most incredible facts about our history. And that is, take any major crisis that almost destroyed Jewish life, and you will see that right after that crisis, there was an unprecedented rejuvenation and explosion of spiritual, intellectual, emotional, and social growth in Klal Yisrael. After Churban Bayis Rishon, which we don't even understand today how profound that destruction was, the whole institution of Teresh Peh was created. Mikdash Ma'at, the whole concept of a shul, you could find the Shechina in every home and every street, but the concept of Mikdash Ma'at, Yecheskel coined it. From one Beis Hamikdash that was destroyed, suddenly Beis Hamikdash was transplanted into millions of thousands of little Beis Hamikdashes. After Churban Bayis Sheni, the explosion of Teresh Peh in terms of Mishnayas, Gemara, Talmud Davi, Talmud Yerushalmi, Zoyar, all the Midrashim, both in Nigla and Kabbalah. Take, take a look at the Crusades, one of the worst moments. And you had the explosion of Yadus Ashkenaz, the whole house of Rashi and the Baliyat Toisvis, a whole expansion of understanding Teresh after the Spanish Inquisition and the Spanish Inquisition was with a watershed moment in Jewish history. And suddenly you had the whole explosion of Pnimi Yisatera, of Kabbalah beginning in Sfas and many other parts of the world. Then you had Tachvatat 1648 and 49. Devastating. Bogdan Chmolinetsky's massacres. Hundreds of thousands were murdered in Poland and Ukraine. And then you had the Shapsi Tzvi crazy debacle just a few decades later. Excuse me, 17 uh, Tov Chavav is what, uh, 1666 and 1676 is conversion to Islam. And then you had the whole explosion of the Balshamtiv and the whole, you know, Hasidic world. And after the Holocaust, you look at the, you look at after the Holocaust, what happened? On one hand, we were decimated. A third of the Jewish people was decimated. And suddenly you saw millions of Jews. Today we have almost 7 million Jews living in our holy land. Eretz Yisrael was rebuilt. Judaism was rebuilt all over the world. How does this happen? How does this happen? I believe the secret goes back to that first, the, 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 our father, Yaakov Avinu, faces an adversary who wants to kill him in the middle of the night. He doesn't kill him, but he maims him. And finally, at the end of the night, Yaakov turns to him. And the man says, let me go. It's time for me to go. And he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. One second. A gangster attacks you. A whole night tries to kill you. Call 911. Call Atzala. Call, <laughs> call, call the police. Call the soldiers. Fight. Run. You're asking him for a bracha? Yaakov Avinu was teaching the Jewish people, when you will face an adversary, when you will face adversity, it's not enough to run away. It's not enough to untangle yourself. It's not enough to rescue whatever you can. You have to be able to look him in the eyes and say, I will not let you go until you don't bless me. I need to come out from this experience more empowered, more blessed, more confident, with more energy, more stamina. Because if not, 
Why would I, what was I put into this darkness in the first place? If the point is just to run away from the darkness, I didn't have it. I didn't have to have it. The reason I'm facing this adversity is ultimately, even if it's mind staggering and it's unfathomable and intellectually I have a billion and one questions, but I know ultimately I need to emerge from this crisis more blessed, more profound, more real, more authentic, more divine, more courageous, and more in touch with the truth. And I think this message of Yaakov has been the guiding light of the Jewish people for almost 4,000 years. And it's the reason we are here, more vibrant, more strong, more alive than ever. And it's not because we don't know how to cry. It's because we know how to cry. It's because we're present. It's because nefesh achas, one soul that's lost, is considered the whole world is lost. And because of our love for life, we also know that life is so holy. The life of a Jew and the life of the Jewish people does not end even when it looks like it ends. You see, this paradox of Judaism is at the core of our power. We see life as so holy, as so sacred, as so divine, as so precious. On one hand, when it's lost, pain is so deep and so visceral. And because of that, we also know that it's much larger than we imagine. The power of the soul is much larger than I imagine. So it's not only that the soul is eternal, that is the core of Kamal Yisrael remains eternal. And even if we can't wrap our brains around the story, we know that the story is much larger than us. And if we open ourselves up to that largeness, to that infinity, to that mystery, there is an inner, inner called mamadaka, a still inner voice, where all of our brothers and sisters, and especially those who were murdered, Al-Kiddush Hashem, almost tell us, Choose life, choose life. There is an inexplicable secret that you are embodying in this world, the secret of Netzach Yisrael, the secret of Enoid Mulvadai, the secret of Ava, of love, of light, of truth, of authenticity. Don't let go because you will be victorious. You will emerge. You're going to transform the darkness into light and transform exile into redemption. And it's clearly resilience is in our DNA. As he went through the historic overview of all the calamities that have occurred to Kalal Yisrael and we have gotten up. Resilience and transformation. And transformation. Beautiful. Resilience and transformation. Now, I, I do want to go a little bit deeper on that because we still have the parents, the mothers, the fathers, the yeah. sons, the wives, the yeah. friends of, we can talk about those who are fighting at the risk of their lives and even more so those who have been killed in action. And, and what is something that we can say to the individuals, as opposed to the cloud, the individuals, those parents, et cetera, those other relatives that have lost a loved one. And obviously that is an un unbelievable contribution that they've given to Klaali show, but the personal pain is so deep. How can we address them in particular? Yeah. I'm gonna try to get through these words without crying too much. Let's see how that works. I'm always touched by the first vision of Moshe Rabbeinu with Hashem, he sees a burning bush that's not being consumed. And he wants to understand it. What's the mechanism? A tree on fire should be consumed. Why is this thorn bush not being consumed? I want to understand. Moshe is, you know, the quintessential intellectual. The Rambam calls him Mivchaminenushi. And Hashem says, don't get close. Take your shoes off your feet because you're standing on sacred soil. In Medrash Rabbah, one of the metaphors in this revelation is that Moshe Rabbeinu was watching the pain and the fires that will consume the Jewish people. When Moshe was looking at a burning bush, he wasn't only looking at a physical bush. 
He was looking at his people who thousands of years will be burnt, murdered, tortured, slain, like the Jews in the kibbutzim who were burnt, shot, killed in barbaric ways. Their homes went up in flames. Many families who died embracing each other in their security reinforcement rooms or wherever they were by the flames ignited by the Hamas Nazis in Machshamam V'Zichrom. Moshe Rabbeinu saw it. He saw, he saw the six million gassed, and he saw the pain of the Jewish people throughout history. Moshe Rabbeinu wants to get close. He wants to understand more about it. Hashem says, take your shoes off your feet. You're standing on sacred soil. What that means for me is, when I am standing in the presence of a person, of a family in pain, a family that has faced the flames of hatred and violence and death, a family that has lost loved ones in the war, in this war against Hamas, in the atrocities of Simchas Torah, or in any other capacity, Al-Kiddush, in any other form, Al-Kiddush Hashem, now or earlier, I have to know I am standing on Admas Kaidish. I am standing on sacred soil. I am standing in the presence of absolute holiness. Literally, the people I am standing in front, I'm talking to, or I'm emailing, or I'm addressing, are in a different plateau. They're existing in a different reality. Life means something completely different for them. Death means different, something different for them. Marriage, love. They don't take anything for granted. They don't take for granted waking up in the morning and seeing your husband, your wife near you, your child near you, having the ability to say goodbye to your child before they go to school. They don't take anything for granted. Admas Kaidish, take your shoes off your feet. I think when we face these families, when we talk to these families, first and foremost, our role is not to philosophize and not to rationalize and not to justify and not to find some brilliant philosophical equation that might make sense or make no sense, but really just to know that this is a story beyond our minds. My job is to be here, to say, we are brothers, we are sisters. We don't understand why. We don't understand the hashgacha. The finite mind has no way of wrapping itself around pure infinity. My job, our job is, I'm, I'll, I'm here for you today and forever. Give my, I want to give my shoulder for you to cry. I want to be able to be here on your terms, not on my terms. I want to be able to attend here to your needs and most important, and equally important. As an orphan once wrote to me, she lost, lost both of his parents. And she said, I don't need p- people to look at me in my eyes and think, what a Nebuch case. What a Rachmanis case. What a pity. Nebuch doesn't have a life. Her whole life is destroyed. I want you to feel my pain. I want you to empathize with me. But I want you to believe in me also. I want you to believe in my power, in the power of life. I want you to believe in the power of my soul. I want you to look at all of these children and all of these women and all of these families and completely empathize and be there experience them as much as you can. Be there on their terms. Be kind. Be gracious. Be attentive. Tune into who they are and what they need. And equally important, see their light. See their power. Believe in them. Believe that don't detach them from their source of life. Don't look at them just as isolated, detached victims who were in bad mazel. Appreciate the fact that their journey is a sacred journey, an inexplicable journey. And humbly, we have the schus and opportunity to embrace them every moment and say, we love you. We love you now and forever. We're here for you. We will be here for you. You are our brothers. You are our sisters. You are our children. You are our parents. You are our families. We will never be able to thank you enough for the ultimate sacrifices that you have made to protect 
Millions of Jews who the Hamas would love to murder like they did on Simchas Remember, we're dealing here with people who would love to give us a Holocaust every single day until every single Jew in Israel is dead. And it's your, your family members who literally went and are going on Messiris Nefesh, Kipshuta, Kipshuta. I saw a clip of a, of a commander who spoke about a debate, an argument he had with one of his soldiers in Khan Yunis a few days ago. He told this soldier, I'm going in first to the home. And the soldier says, no, I'm going in first. You have four children. He says, you have two and you're young. You still have to build your family. I'm going and I have experience in Gaza. And the other person says, no, you let me go. And he says, I am going. He says, imagine two Jewish fathers in Gaza fighting. Who's going to go in first to make sure the other person is protected and their children will have a father? Where do you find such people? Where do you find such people? I was watching this clip. I started to cry. I just wanted to hug him and tell him, wow, I am in awe of you. We are in awe of each and every one of you. All of Knesset Yisrael is indebted to you, is grateful to you. Every Jew from Avram Avinu till Mashiach, not only is part of your fan club, but we cheer you on. We salute every one of these soldiers. We salute every one of these Kedoshim. And we salute every one of their families who are surviving, who are continuing their legacy and their life with such courage. I don't want to be able to ask myself why, because the question of why is mute. First, is mute. I don't have an answer for it. I don't think any one of us have, have answers for it. But I think we need to go into a deeper place. Questions and answers don't really touch the nerve of the issue. This is, this is a time where we go into a place what we call emuna. Emuna means not passivity. Emuna means the courage to face adversity head on, looking at reality, not being naive, without losing our power of love and connection and commitment and our will for life. And I think when we can approach this from this perspective, it doesn't give answers and it doesn't take away the pain. But none of us can do that. None of us can do that. Our role at this point is to take off our shoes and embrace each and every one of them, knowing how things are gonna work out in the long run, You know how history works out. This is not for me to know. This is only one knows it, the one who created the whole world. The one who's mashgiach, bahashgach, is divine providence on every single person's life. And I have to say that the visceral pain that Jews felt after October 7th and are still feeling, with all of it, the, 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 the depth of hurt and anguish, it shows how our organism is working and it's alive. It's alive. You know, if I don't feel the pain in my finger, it's not a good sign. You know, there's no nerves there. Chas v'shalom, if a limb is amputated, it's amputated. The fact that the Jewish people, thousands of kilometers, thousands of miles away from Beiri, from near Yitzchak, from near Rose, from Kwaraza, most Jews never even heard the names of these kibbutzim. They don't know anybody who lives there. They don't know any of the families that were slain there. But everybody, or almost everybody, was feeling so much pain. Why? The answer is, we are a living organism, and it's functioning. It's functioning. So the visceral pain is really a demonstration of the visceral love. And therefore, I always tell my students and friends, I say, we're all having a lot of pain. Just look behind the pain and you'll see how much love there is. So it's very beautiful. And tune into the love. Very beautiful, very beautiful. Turning the trauma into growth. Very beautiful. Rabbi Jacobson, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for the honor and the privilege. May we see a complete victory. And may we see a complete gu'ula.
now. Amen. Amen. Joining us now is Rabbi Aviad Goldvich. Rabbi Goldvich is actually a rabbi and businessman who also serves as a Rav Tzai, which is a rabbi in the IDF. Rabbi Goldvich, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Such a pleasure to have you. So tell me, us, what does a Rav Tzai do? How many are there? What's their tough key? What's their task and the responsibilities in the army nowadays? Okay, so Rav Tzai, many people don't really know what a Rav Tzai unless you have something to do with the army. Uh, Rav Tzai has the basic roles. Um, of a rabbi, like in any community, Kashus, Shabbos, Eruvin, uh, anything else that has to do, uh, Pesach, right? All the basic things that a Jewish community needs the rabbi for. All your regular questions, Q&A questions, halacha questions, mainly Shabbos, obviously. Uh, but not only. There's also the big part, uh, that people don't always take care of of the fallen. If, uh, we've done this a lot in the past, uh, uh, few months of, uh, people who have fallen, uh, doing battle. So anything to do with the crew or COVID anything until it's handed over to the Chavit Kadisha. But the main role of the Rav, in my opinion, my humble opinion, is the Ruach. That's the, the bring, morale. The morale, bringing in the, the, the Yiddish guy, bringing, putting everybody together, like one of your community, putting them up, lifting the spirits, they are, 30 days in Aza, 40 days in Aza. They don't eat regular foods. They don't see the family. They want spiritual, the spiritual thirst out there and they're looking for it. And we saw, I'm sure you saw all the campaigns. People wanted tzitzis. It didn't come out of nowhere. People wanted it. People wanted the, the ruchnius. And, and that's the main role of the Rav. It's like Mishuach Muhammad goes out there and he gives up another prep talk before you go out to war. That's what the Rav's main role is. That's his, that, that's the most important role. Everything else is, this, you have to be there in person to do. Well, very important task. So, halacha, post-game, and morale. Morale is the most important thing. Ruach, ruach, mulchama, yeah. Very nice. That, that is one of the most important things of all of Iraq. So, so, we'll, we'll focus more on halacha, at least for now. And okay. if we have time, we'll talk more morale, because that's fascinating. I didn't expect that. We'll start with, the, maybe this is more of a political question. It's a halacha question for sure, but it's probably decided by politicians. It should be decided by the Rabbanim. We've talked on headlines before about exchanging soldiers, or they call them hatufim nowadays, uh, those people who are taken Host- captive hostages and exchanging them for the terrorists in the Israeli in the, in the Israeli prisons. And that, that's a very complicated halakhic question. But one thing I've never seen discussed is how about a body? Rahman al they have the bodies of a number of Jews who are captured. What is the halakhic discussion, even just on a high level, of exchanging live terrorists for the bodies of those who are nifter? Right. So it's a very complicated question. I think you can spend the... Uh... Many days and weeks just talking about the different sides of it. Uh, I, again, we're not giving any psychic here, and obviously everything in the army is always just a different because every case you got to deal with it separately because every case has its own nuances. But in general, just very high, high level, there, there is, um, uh, the morale that we spoke about that every soldier that goes out to war knows Israel do whatever they possibly can to get him back dead or alive. So yes, it's covered the maze. Yes, that, that's important. Uh, but also to know that Am Israel and Eretz Israel, I mean, I mean the government of Israel will do everything in their power to get them back. So part of the 
soldier going to war and fighting? No, if God forbid he has fallen. And by the way, I've been with many soldiers. People think, you know, the soldiers, oh, the kid, they don't know what's going on. No, the soldiers go up there, they go up to battle. I've been with quite a few of them. And they tell me, I know I may come back in a coffin. And they moisten their fish. Meaning, they, they moisten their fish actively knowing. I don't think people have the, 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 I mean, we, we live, I, I don't know what people are listening, but most people live in the house, yeah, they went there, they got food, they got heat, and they saw them go to camp, they go, they're having a good time, everything is wonderful, they come to Israel for circus, they come for whenever it's comfortable, it's all very nice. The people out there are willing to be moist and efficient, or physically moist and efficient, every day, as we speak now, so we can sit here and have Shabbos, and send the kids to school, and the moist and efficient, willingly, and these are tired, that kind of stuff such a different madriga that they're willing to do that on a daily basis. So part of that, of, of the contrary to that, to the question is, they know that they're most nefesh and they might not be able to come back home. But um, but one of the things they know is Israel do whatever he possibly can to get them back. So is there a number? No. We saw previous cases in Israel that they gave out you know, a thousand soldiers for one person and, and, and then the problem is that the terrorists go back to do terrorist activities and it's very complicated. On the other hand, you want to give people whatever they can, right? As many bodies as you could. You want to bring them closure to the family, which is a very important thing. We see another lot of questions. Closure to the family is super important, super important. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's many cases, maybe we'll touch about it a bit later, but it's like the number one thing for, uh, for the army to make sure if something happens to the child or to the husband, to the father, the family is the first one to know. And they'll do it if it's raised against time. But getting back to the halacha point, and just to, to touch, to finish this point, it's very complex, and that's why he has many, many changing variables in it, political, government, international, national, morale, and things like that. So every case will go forward. So there's no real... Yeah, so so it seems from, from a strictly halachic perspective, we do have limitations. We looked at the response even for live individuals, live live people, Jews who are in cap in captivity. We have severe limitations, but when we build into that concept of the morale, it seems like there's a little bit more wiggle room as to the strict halacha. So I think, I think if you look two years ago, I think it was two, maybe three years ago, Zechariah Baumel, I don't know if you guys remember that. He's on the MIAs from 82, 1982. He was brought back... <laughs> You just reminded me, he was brought back, I think, with Putin and Bibi Netanyahu. There's all story, interesting story. How I think, uh, I think the story goes like this. It's what I've heard that Mahmoud shared in 10 seconds because it's a fascinating story. Um, Israel helped Russia with something many years ago and he saved a lot of Russian soldiers' life. So, uh, you know, so Netanyahu came to the meeting and they said, make like the top 10 list of something that you can ask, um, you know, in return. It's a common between countries, I guess, uh, you know, Rav Nistar and Migla. So they made a list of top Top ten important things to put in there, and um, and we showed up to the meeting. He just popped into his head. He said, "Doesn't know how." He said, "We have a soldier that fell in in Syria. Um, his name is Zachary Bomo, uh, many years ago. And if you can do, if you please get us back to the family." And Putin was blown away. He's like, "I'm I'm able to give you whatever you want. I'm you have you know you did a favor to my country, and I'm here to pay back the favor. I can give you anything you want. All you want." Is a soldier that died? You're only asking 40 years for Yavna the 40, year, 40 years ago, someone who's dead 40 years ago? He said, this is what God put in my in my, oh, my mind right now. This is what I'm showing And they went and they dug up endless amounts of grapes in Syria. And they found the body. DNA they, testing. Not even DNA. The Tzitzis was there. There's all kind of this. If you look it up, the show online, you can find it. They found the body. The body was buried here in our Herzl. I happened to have gone to the Leviah. And we came from Chesom. And there was closure. And there was closure. And the family came. The father would passed away. But I think the rest of the family came. The sister was there. And we came from Chesom. Samson wants to bring all his sons to Kuru. 
Very nice. Well, what's the implication of not getting a body back? I know psychologically there's not going to be closure, but from a perspective of Olam Haba, from a perspective of well, the Neshama. So we we don't really know exactly on the on the spiritual level. I could tell you on the halachic level. All right. Um, usually, um, the amount needed usually do the vibe if you have a kazai service, right? And once there's a special bidding in the Rabbanot, uh, that they declare on someone you're 100% dead, okay? Without that bidding, every single soldier that died is going to get declared by it. Otherwise, it doesn't go, right? Because they're very complicated uh, stories that, that have happened in the past and currently also. So if there is nobody, but we know the 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 person was definitely Niftar. So from the, when the Shmua comes, the family starts to sit Shiva, and he sit Shiva without the body. So Shmua means? Not Shmua, not Shmua, very careful. Okay. A hundred percent concrete evident with Edus, with everything needed, the, the guys, the, the person was Niftar, then once there's a Chalita, it's called the confirmation of Bezdin, that this person is dead, is passed away, that's when the family starts sitting Shiva. Unless, unless, the following case happens. Let's say, God forbid, a person, a soldier got blown up. And whatever scenario there was, I'm being very general, not to get to any specific, but everything I say happened. Okay? Uh, body blown up, and and uh, and he said, there's nothing there. Right? Or there's, uh, they found the Kazais. Okay? So you start there, you're 100% evading, you have everything, everything's gone. So you start doing sitting in the Shiva. Now, doing the Shiva, they, they found the body. They found the rest of the body, or pieces of the body. So... They have nothing. Now they have things. So usually it's Mishas Kvura. Mishas Kvura, that's when you start the Shiva. So the question now here, you extend. You already started the Shiva. You extend the Matzah. If they finish the Shiva without the body, they do not sit Shiva again. Question arised, and arised also in the past few months, is they didn't have a body. They started sending Shiva because they had 100% present And then a few days later, they were able to retrieve the body or parts of it. So there was also a big machlokas on that. The maskal, I think, was nifsak not to add on anymore to the shiva. And they just carried on the shiva to that. And they, and they buried, they did a levaya in the middle of the shiva. A levaya in the middle of the shiva. Correct, correct. And correct. how about when it comes to chalitza and similar halachas? So, so chalitza, we, before we touch chalitza, just touch one other interesting things with the levaya. Because, um, you know, if you, if you, if you're able to retrieve a part of the body, Part of the body was able to be retrieved. Now, now you, you want to make all the efforts together because you know the person was left up. Now you want to go back in there. Some of them is fire zones and you can't go in right now. So you wait till the night. Then you're going to retrieve. So you're able to retrieve half. That's it. Now, so do you do a half knowing you might get another half? So the answer is no. You wait. So it really depends on the case. If you know you're going to retrieve the, the rest of the body within a reasonable amount of time, you wait with the, you wait with the Leviathan. You wait on the Leviathan, but you still start the Shiva. No, you don't start the Shiva because you know you're going to have, you have the body. Only when you don't have the body and it's 100% dead, you start the Shiva. If you're waiting for the Kvur, it's Mishasa Kvur. It's like someone who passed away in America. And you bring him to Israel, you start from Mishasa Kvur, that's when you start sending Shiva. You don't start sending Shiva. Even though you know for certain there is a Ptira, but because you're yes, waiting. because you, but you have a body, but you don't have the whole body. Wow. So now what, what happened was like this, which is quite fascinating. So it's like now, it's in Israel, it's Shkir, it's in like 10, 15 minutes, right? So they, they, they found the body, they confirmed now. So they tell them, listen, there's no way we're going to make the, the Levi before Shkir. So it's going to be tomorrow. So let's push the Levi to tomorrow. So tomorrow, you can either make the Levi at 10 a.m. or at 3 p.m. There's usually slots when you do the Levi. So they will recommend to the family to wait till 3. So they have much more time to try to retrieve whatever they possibly can. And then with Hashem, get the rest of the, whatever they possibly can. And then do one Levi with all, with everything inside. 
and and then you have all the Avram. Obviously, if the if uh, so, so that the army will recommend the Rabbanut will recommend to wait if it's full limbs, if it's just small pieces like blood and things like that, that you don't you don't you don't hold the, the life for. But but if it's like a limb, kafibil it's missing or something like that, uh, then they probably will tell them uh, to wait. wait. But if if there's not going to be going back there, let's say it was on the border, and you're going to be endangering other people together, you bury the whole you have, and that's it. Don't wait. You don't, you bury the you don't wait, because you don't know if you're ever going to get back. Right, right. Obviously, very sad questions. Very sad questions. Uh, um, but again, anybody listening to this, don't, don't, don't think, I know, maybe it's not the happiest thing, but I think it re-emphasizes how much cover the mace we try to do, how much we make an effort to bring everything to the family, how much closure. Like the second the family, the song is after, there's teams of people to, to track down every single first king of the family, sons, children, brothers, sister, father, grandparents, and every, there's a soldier being sent to each one. So personally. Goes, personally. There's not like we'll call someone. You go to the person to where they are, at work, or whatever it is that they are. Any time of day. And you go anytime they are night and you go there and and you deliver them a message in person before and it's a race against time because if someone hurts and says it sends a WhatsApp or a message, so it's a race against time to get to get to the family. And that's why they only do once they know hundred percent obviously that they have a Vandai. So that could be a delay then. Yes. But, but that's why once you have that's why sometimes you see there's the delay, people following soldiers, you don't see the names for another day or two. That's why. And that's uh, what they refer to as the defica al adelet, the knock right. on the door. The knock on the door. When yes. the people come in person, knock yes. on the door and Yes. And that's not yeah, not an easy situation. But yeah. And let's get back to Chalitza. So that that is gonna be just like the Shiva, then you have the Chalitza, all the halach yeah. taken at the same time. Yeah, I mean there are, there are some cases from this past world of Chalitza. Mm-hmm. Uh there are some there are cases of there are simple ones of just, you know, young couples which were married and didn't have any children and uh and they have Chalitza. They have to do Chalitza. There are some more complicated ones, um of of um people who got really badly Wound, badly, uh, died in a very way that there's no way to, I don't want to go to details here. To recognize. Uh, you can't recognize anything, but there's a body. There's, there's, there's something. And there was a case like that. Uh, now we're going too much detail and there was no DNA. Usually today, every soldier that goes into the army go, issues DNA for the past really 10, 15 years. DNA, full dental pictures, fingerprints and pictures. So you have at least four ways of mechanism of recognizing the nifter if there's nobody there with him. In this particular case, it wasn't recognizable. Nothing was there. And there was one fingerprint left. One finger. One fingerprint. And they have to determine to see if it's connected to that body. Because mm-hmm. a person could live without a finger and then it could be somewhere else and this woman is a aguna. But if you say, no, it's part of that body, then you can matter the aguna. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, she needs, she can't be much of a guna. You know, now she's, she needs, a, you know, her husband died and now she's an almana. Right. She's not an aguna because you have the body and confirm this is the husband. There's no more aguna. And therefore you can, you can, uh, you can answer. The other questions have, by the way, is, you know, all you need, by the way, to, um, okay. Maybe you ask the questions now. Okay, yeah, these have been very serious questions. Let, let, let's, let's ask you now. You get a lot of questions. You get a lot of Shilas. The, uh, Rabbanim Swain get a lot of interesting Shilas. Tell us about some of the interesting Shilas. Let's start with one. Some fascinating question that, uh, was received by the, the Rabbanim and the Tzavah. Well, there's, there's endless amount of questions. Some are funny. Some are, uh, some are interesting. Stam, there's a question the other day. The guys are in, are in, in Azam. Now, don't forget, people think the soldiers, all oh, soldiers, soldiers are from yeshiva boys, <laughs> from as the yeshivas, or even avrechim, or people, or just religious people. There's tons of religious, super from, you know, just to put it to people who don't know what, what that means. Like, tons, all, I think everybody almost 
keeps some parts of mitzvahs, but most of them are really, really from people. And so they have minyanim every day. They try to be minyanim every day, even in Anza. So they were, they had a minion outside of a mosque, and, and they, the Bikas Kohanim, they were the Bikas Kohanim, they didn't have a mat. So one guy pulled out a mat from the mosque, so he said, can you use the mat for the coin to sit on, to stand on for Bikas Kohanim? Oh, like, wow. The ones that math that they're the they, down. they buy down onto or not, right? No, so they're, you, they're bowing down to the same guy. Uh, yeah, but this was used for other zealots. So obviously, it's 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 most. It's better to use something else because you know. But if there's nothing else, and you can use it because it's like using for the same guy. That's like a funny question that you know that that happened. I mean, these are questions that happened. There's a lot of questions of you know of, of Shabbos, for example. The the soldier um, is allowed to leave. You know, he's been in Azov for like sixty days. Now he's allowed to leave. On, on, on Friday morning or Thursday night, they said, okay, you can go, but be back Shabbos afternoon. Be back Shabbos afternoon because he's going back in. Now, he hasn't seen his family in 60 days, 70 days. He hasn't seen his wife, right? And, and he's got to go back. So do you go back knowing they have to come back on Shabbos? So now there's a lot of question. But also, you have to look at the big picture. There's kids, there's family, there's more, there's more support. They also need to see their father. They also need to be with them. So obviously, they, they, it was nefsuk. And you do go home. That's you a, go home. Go home and you, you go home, back on Shabbos. You be with the wife, you be with the kids, you're going to come back on Shabbos. Same thing with Shom Zamanovach as a Psalm. If you, if you're allowed to, if this, if the soldiers are leaving on, on Shabbos, uh, even day or, or night or whatever it was, and he goes down to the base and he knows next morning he's got to go back in. Right? So he hasn't showered in two, three weeks. He's not allowed to shower. He's not allowed to shower on Shabbos. He doesn't have clean clothes. He's allowed to do laundry. On Shabbos, for the clean clothes, so you should have uh, clean clothes to go back into others on Shabbos morning. This is Shom Zalman because that's part of the spirit of fighting. You can't, can't feel like a drek. And <laughs> fighting like a drek, yeah, it affects on the person. If you get new clothes, he takes a shower once every three weeks. When was the last time he took a shower once every three weeks? It's not pleasant. Never. Never. Exactly. So most people never. But this is the thing. I, I saw people coming out of Gaza. I haven't shown in six weeks. I'm shown in four it's weeks. Full of oil. And, and, oil from, from and I gave equipment. them a lot of tzitzis. So, so the only thing we can change is tzitzis. So we like clean tzitzis. It's on our body. So we don't, we don't, we just put them in a bag later, but we change the tzitzis because it's like changing an undershirt. That's why they like the tzitzis on. If anybody's wondering where all the thousands of tzitzis went, that's where they went, right? They went to the soldiers that, that actually want something clean, something a bit more pleasant on that, on that stuff. And, um. That's so Kaylee Van Veil. Kaylee Van Veil. And, and all these types of questions, you know, uh, like again, shy, turning on a fan in, in the tank. It's hot. You know, on, turn on, that on, on Shabbos. But you're going to be in there for, if it's very hot, you're going to be there for a few hours, how's it going to affect you finally? If it affects you finally, so you could, if you can. It's not all kinds of different questions that come with Shabbos. Do you do everything? You don't do everything. Which areas do you do everything on Shabbos? If you're going to be there for Shabbos, shul, the guild shuls, moving safe to I even had a case. <laughs> I mean, it was a very funny case. It wasn't even a case. It was just, just happened. I was, I was sure for about a week and a half. We dealt with, with all the Kedoshim. The civilians, the soldiers, a lot of, a lot of Ashkokhapati stories there, a lot of crazy stories within, uh, within you see how every person has his own Ashkokha till he's buried, till his mouth put in the ground. Ashkokha is mouth to the last second. Crazy stories. But after being there for a week, a friend of mine, which is, uh, uh, to be up north, so I'd come and help him. So I went up north and it was, um, it was the Golan Heights, south on the Syrian border. It was Ashkokhish Cheshvan. I remember like, it was a few months ago. And I got there, he's like, everybody's down, the, the mood was down. I was like, I was like, listen, it's a shkodesh. You have a sefetor here? It's like, let's get a sefetor. You have a jeep, get a jeep, get a sefetor. Got the jeep, got the gun, got the sefetor. And people were positioned in different areas around, around the border. Just on Sukhastor was sent with two tanks or with other convoy types of, of, uh, of vehicles. And they had to take positions because nobody knew what was going on. So I said, let's go there. 
I'm sure they haven't been there for whatever. So we both took some snacks, took some stuff, took the Sefer Torah with us. He takes Sefer Torah now. So we went to the first one. There's 12 yeshiva boys sitting there, middle of nowhere, on the border. There's a little yeshiva. Some guys had a Sefer or two. It was funny. And, uh, and I said, guys, you guys are the top. He said, no, we didn't have a chance. I'm like, great. So said, does anybody want to lane? They lane. They give Aliyah to each one. Everybody got in the Aliyah. And then we went after Sefer Torah. We told them a little Vatar, give them something. And then I told them, guys, when did he get in? So, so we arrived Simchas Torah day. I'm like, oh. Interesting. So I said, did you do our kafas during the day? She says, no, we didn't do our kafas. I was like, okay, listen, I don't have a bima. I have a jeep. I got a safe tour. Let's do our kafas. So we did our kafas on the Syrian border. Around every, the jeep. Around the jeep. Every soldier got to take the safe tour around the jeep one time. And then we danced the Kibbutz Yon And for them, it was just like, imagine, so we come and start dancing. And, and you, you know, we got the pizza after they revived. And we did this few, a few posts and, and he really gave, People, chayis, people, so you see that part of our mission is Kim Chayim, right? It's after Bechaltan, Mikola Ami, after Tan, Ratzitabam, right? The, the, the Torah is what's Machayim, Amishra. So sometimes people less exposed, so people less, more exposed, but when you see it and you see the, the, the spark in the eye, they, they just, and then guy said, he said to me, said, you know, I came, I came from, from Yerushalayim, so I, I was going to be there for a few days. So he says, I'm like, is anything we can get you guys? This guy, this guy says, um, he said, yeah, Masechah's getting. I'm like, okay. I'm like, what are you saying? I'm like, I'm Dafyomi. I've been already for like, uh, two, almost two weeks. I'm falling behind. I don't have a Gemara. I have a Chumash. I have a Gemara. So I have to have a small volume in my car. I've got to have a So I was going to my son. So I said, I'll give it to you. Just say thank you to my son on the video. Say, no, I didn't just lose it somewhere. I'm like, yeah, I gave it to a soldier. And that's it. And he took the Gemara and then the biggest one. And that's, that's what these guys, this Beautiful. is, these are the soldiers of Amishram. The Kuvayt in the Torah, the Linter. And by the way, you should just know, there's a big thing. We've talked about Rabbanin Tzvayim and a lot of misconceptions. You know, the Rabbanin in the past five years has, has done tremendous change. All the meat in the army is Chalak. Imagine. All the kitchen, Shemit al and all the vegetables, like what we call Gush Katev without bugs. Meaning that the army is slowly done trans- transformation that all the food one can eat in the army is, is Mahajan. Is Mahajan. Quietly. But that, that's because it's the man of soldiers. That's what they want. So if I'm really doing the kitchen, I'll do the Mahajan. The that, whole army the whole is army, The whole army is Mahajan. All the food where you go, you can eat in any kitchen in the army. Not Mutsavim is a bit more complicated, but on any base of food that they bring to you from catering because not need a lot, everything's Mahajan and Chalak. And there's a list. And, and you, if someone wants a special Mahajan to get to you as well, if you want, like, I don't know, but that's, you know, Mahajan and Mahajan, it's also fine. But everything is Mahajan. And, and this is done for Amish, right? feed something like kosher. So you want to make sure that all the soldiers get uh, tremendous stuff. The last thing also, um, uh, in general, just a general question, what do you do on Shabbos? If someone's dead on Shabbos, do you identify someone on Shabbos or not? Right, going back to the... Well, let's leave it Muqsa. Leave Muqsa, leave it done. Right? What, what do we do? So in a time of war, we do identification on Shabbos even on a derisa, because it's more national. People people need to know the closure. You can't have somebody find, like we said before, through a third party. So you do it. Once you know it, it's completely, you have to know maybe he's kidnapped or not. At the beginning, people know if he was kidnapped, if he was killed. So once you know someone is killed, and it's confirmed, you, you know, you, you let the people know, the family know. And then you stop. And then you stop. Then you do nothing else till, till Moti Shabbos, right? But what about in regular time where it's not a time of war and unfortunately a soldier dies or it's an accident or something like that happens? So that, um, you do first identification so you can let the family know again race against time so nobody hears it because it's your grandfather can hear without it being told the right way you can have a heart attack and die so there's here. so even though it's a chashash rachok for for nefesh still that's what they do it uh, and therefore you identify him also on and you let him know that is on in war 
in regular times, we do only identification of the Rabbanon. Well, like, and you take a non-Jewish driver, you do whatever you could as a Rabbanon, not to be over any devices, again, to have closure for the people. These are all things you mark with Kalaki Vachamor. Everything from the Kvura, everything is done. Mamish, the best possible way the Jewish person needs to be handled with. And that's the job of the Rabbanon. The Rabbanon in the army takes every case seriously. All the cases, you have to be super careful to not identification. God forbid they identify the wrong things. So, so those are those are the main questions. There's also a lot of other very sad questions, like families who, you know, some people, you know, fall into trauma and they say, what well, was my son? People from the grave, I want to see my son. Like really horrible things. So, so that you have to, the, the different halachic things and more things, but usually we, it's not done. Right, it's usually we do things only which which are mechaba demais and the family at the same time. And and the idea of 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 the rabbi is really it's like he has a own community. He's like a community rabbi in the army. So usually you go on training. You go once, you know. So someone who's who's in the army regularly, like regular soldiers, who go for two years. So it's your rabbi all the time. So his mom is like, you call him on every Shabbos. So I have a problem. You know, they, they go, they do bar mitzvahs, they do weddings. Because I, I know I'm not a rabbi, but my rabbi is always a nice guy, and they come and they do things for them, which are. Like the community rabbi, so it's not religious, not a community rabbi, but he knows he has a rabbi in the army, he's a nice guy, he goes with us wherever we go, we go into fighting, he comes with us, right, because if something happens, he needs to withdraw, you know, the, the, the dead bodies and things like that. So, so they do, so it's like a rabbi of the community. In Miluim, also, it's like random groups of people from all over Israel, religious town, they just all fighting together, farm Israel, ferrets Israel, moms, Rucham Smith, going to the Rabbi, going to everybody. It's like, we don't have a we see they want to kill us. It's not just chance. They actually want to kill us. They don't want us here. They're, it's they're they're desiring to kill they, us. They want to kill you. And then, and, and by the way, and, and by the way, I just want to say one thing about that, but just to finish it. So these rabbis are like, they looked at it, you, what do you mean? You're a community. We need you here. And that is, you know, and, and they get, and they get, and they have time to speak because you do guard at night, the guard duty. Oh, the rabbi, I need to talk to you about this problems. And they pour out in the, in the, and they want to get close. But sometimes, you know, busy day life, people are working, running, chasing family, kids, they don't have time to sit and learn. They don't have time to, to get into Yiddish Now they have time. So they get close to Yiddish And that's why there's a big, it's totally was an army swell, big, big push. Here. They say after 1973, the big, uh, care movement started in Israel. I believe after Sukhastar, Tavshin Pedal, there's going to be a super, yes, and, and, and that is the thing. I just have to say one other thing. I do think this is just my opinion. Uh, it's my opinion because, you know, Western, you know, all of us have been Westernized. Every single one of you. Of Amisfah. Um, especially in Chutzlarz, I would say it's like walking through Macy's. You know, there's like a cologne uh, department, whatever this perfume. You walk in, you don't touch anything. You just walk through. You come on the other side. You smell like cologne. Right, it's the same thing here. We don't have to do anything. You can be smellish all day. You can be smellish all day, but and and running all day and and you know living in community. But you really are affected by your surrounding. And I just want to finish with this. So I think I know. We've all been Westernized to be moral, accepted. We, we need to be super nice. We need to be humanitarian. We need to be all these nice things, right? And, and, and that's how we, and, and that's how we approach, in my opinion, the Arab-Israeli conflict in Israel. And I think what we've seen now, you know, I have friends who went to Aza, every single house they went to, there's books, the Minecraft of, of, uh, Hitler, of, Hitler, 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 of, uh, Karl Marx and, and maps of Israel, of, it, of all the people in Israel and, and, uh, picture of Arbeit, Al-Aqsa, which is not the Al-Aqsa, Al-Aqsa, the gray one, but the golden one, whatever it is. This and is, ammunition and, and of weapons. Of course, ammunition else. and everything else for sure. What, what does that mean? There's a Milchemed Datim. We shouldn't fool ourselves. It's who is going to live in Israel. 
It's going to be the Jews or it's going to be the Arabs. That is what this Muhammad is about. So yeah, you want to be politically nice, two state, this state. It doesn't work. We've just been shown, right? Am Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, because what we gave Eretz Yisrael to Avon Levinu, for us, David HaMelech, for us, this is Am Yisrael, for Eretz Yisrael. So I say, no, I'm going to try to do this, and trying to be nice. It can be very nice, it can be man, speak mechobedek, dechertz kabbal Torah. But you shouldn't be, com- you shouldn't be confused, the oh, maybe I should let, all of Eretz Yisrael is our, period. And stop, nothing else, Akush Bore gave to us, Breshis Bar Lekim, that's the first Rashi in the Torah. Right, people say, oh, Akush Bore gave it to us. That's an Adam, they want to live here? Isn't that you want to live by Allah's grid? Not? Find another place. Now, I think that is, people always beat around the bush, especially Americans or Europeans. Nobody likes to get into conflicts. Nobody likes to say, oh, it's a debate. What are we going to say? We, we have to stand and be proud that we're Amazon. The Shabbat gave us the Torah. All the other nations, they want the Torah. So we're Zakhan the Torah because we wanted it. You gave us to Israel, they give it to all the countries. So we have to stand on what is ours. And if we vacillate, vacillate or move around, then the other nations hear that very quickly and they jump on it. Now they go to the hog and all these other... I mean, this is what happens because... Yeah, and the world, in my humble opinion, respects people who stand on what's theirs. And and, you, and also, as you see, I remember I was in America, in university, you're from in university, not a religious university, or you, you show me Shabbos, or in a workplace, I'm a Chabadu, this man of his, of his, like, well, we are Israel, we've got a stand for values, which is Eretz Yisrael, the Torah, Kedoshah, living in Israel, and, and you see, I'm even in the army, they do every single thing to, to help Am Yisrael, to make sure we live by the Torah, the Chathila, and Abed Yavet, and it's a big school, and again, I start and I finish, me, Ka'am there's no one like Am Yisrael, every time I go in, Every time I see the soldiers, you just constantly see it again and again. And we should all be proud of it and not apologetic about it. And, and the more we're proud of it, the more it be easy for us to, to, to be over the Shem Simcha and with full happiness and everything we do. Rabbi Goldrich, beautiful. We got halacha, we got morale, we got hashkafa, we got politics. What a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Anything if we can help with it, this is the Kaddishim Shaman. Thanks so much. Joining us now is Dr. Jacob Friedman. Dr. Friedman is a board-certified psychiatrist in both America and Israel after completing his training as chief resident at Harvard Medical School. Doctor, I don't know if that's a good thing anymore now or not, but at (laughs) least the uh, president has quit her job. So it got a little bit better recently. (laughs) So after uh, his training at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Friedman made Aliyah with his wife and children. He lectures widely to the Jewish community and is known for his popular column in Mishpacha magazine and his book, Off the Couch, and also a new one coming out right now, The Things I Told My Patients. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. I have to be honest, Rabari, it is a sincere honor to be here. I believe that the work that you do uh, serves as a beacon uh, of hope for us and, frankly, a lighthouse for rational Judaism. All of us interested in a bit of sanity, uh, nowhere to turn on a weekly basis. Thank Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for your kind words, Eric. Thank you very much. Dr. Friedman, let me ask you, I just had somebody over for Shabbos just a couple days ago. And it was interesting. He's from Flatbush and he's visiting Israel. He comes occasionally. And he said his sense is that the general sentiment in Israel is one of sadness. And I'd like to get your input. You speak with a lot of people. You see a lot of people. You're in touch with a lot of people. What would you say is the general sentiment that you see going on right now? So I think it's one of uh, sadness. It's one of fear. It's one of rage, and it's also one of awe, wonder, and excitement, because 
There are horrific crimes against humanity that we keep on hearing about and experiencing. And in the same sense, we hear more and more about the Nisim and the Niflaos uh, that are constantly happening to Claudia Israel. For every terrifying story that we hear about a family at a barbecue and all of a sudden a, a rocket explodes uh, in the midst of innocent civilians uh, injuring and heaven forbid killing people, we hear later about how thousands of rockets were fired over the weekend and Baruch Hashem, there were very few casualties. So a lot of this has to do with the way that as an individual, we look at facts and then we process facts. And I think uh, as we're talking about this, we have to be mindful of the way that we uh, receive information, process information, and uh, of the ones that we love in order to support them uh, through their own understanding of our current circumstances. Again, everybody's sad, mad, or scared. And sometimes we vacillate between all of those uh, different emotions. But we are also constantly uh, excited in inspired and filled with a, a righteous fire to, to grow as human beings and achieve our national mission. So I don't think that it's too bizarre to say that within this dichotomy, we're able to have both sides of the coin. Interesting. How about the Chayalim, the soldiers themselves? They're obviously literally under the gun. So what would you say you, you consult, they consult with you, a number of them, I know. So how would you say they are holding out? Well, first of all, we have to understand that soldiers in the IDF are normal people. So soldiers in the IDF are my lawyer, your cousin, my neighbor, the guy at the gas station, uh, a doctor, in the office above mine, a lawyer in the office below mine. These are normal people who are you and I, except that we've aged out at this point, uh, not to accuse you of being uh, over the age of 40. But, or 50. <laughs> but um, these are normal people. So to say, how do soldiers feel? The question is, how do human beings feel when they are in the midst of combat on the level of what we've seen in movies and stories about Vietnam and World War II and Korea, uh, there are crazy stories of urban combat and young men and young women and grown men and grown women in the army who are seeing dead bodies eaten by cats and dogs in the middle of the street. Uh, a patient of mine uh, was in a jeep and the young man next to him had his eye blown out. Uh, and you have those images in your head. I have those images in my head, and I wasn't even there. How much more so for a young gentleman who was studying architecture at Tel Aviv University, who all of a sudden uh, is flying back from a vacation in Thailand and now fighting uh, in Kafar Aza with a gun that doesn't work and no helmet or gloves because we were, frankly, unprepared for this as a nation. I think that we have to keep in mind in the same sense, though, that as part of one's training to go into the army, there is a, an understanding of how to keep calm under fire and how to stay focused 
and stay emotionally balanced. And uh, God willing, uh, the Army will continue to be cognizant of preparing uh, folks for entering combat, as well as for preparing soldiers for transitioning back into uh, non-combat situations of what we would otherwise call real life. One more subset to ask you about before we go on to some more positive questions for you. And that's that. How about the students? I know you've gone along, you've gone around and you've spoken to dozens of yeshiva seminaries about the war and how they should be handling the situation and dealing with their parents. These are talking about students that have come from abroad and now they're studying here. So what would you say the challenges are of those who are studying in yeshiva, studying in seminaries? And, and what do you tell them about how to handle the situation that we're currently in? So, I think let's just talk about the parents who should remember that they knew something like this could happen and that, frankly, they believed that this was the best place for their kids to grow, which I think is still the case. Uh, folks who have stayed here for seminary, uh, yeshiva, gap year programs, study abroad, have had tremendous growth experiences here. And we have to remember that uh, nowhere is unfortunately safe, whether it's in Melbourne, Toronto, or downtown Manhattan. Uh, it is dangerous to be a Jew these days, and we have to be cognizant of that. Obviously, uh, there's layers to that statement. But uh, we should remember that it is a decision that we've made to send our kids here, to keep our kids here, and that our kids have made themselves to come to Eretz Yisrael and to stay here. What are the main things that I'm telling uh, these folks who are here during this time in order to cope with this? Well, uh, we're doing a lot of what's called... uh, cognitive restructuring, cognitive reframing, which is essentially a way of taking in the emotions of fear and, oh my goodness, I could be exploded by a rocket. Oh my goodness, there could be a terrorist attack. Oh my goodness, uh, there could be a shooting, which is unfortunately a fact. But at the same time, we're thinking about facts and probability on the ground. Thank God the vast number of people have not been directly Uh, struck with a rocket. And most of the rockets uh, are either blocked by the Iron Dome or fall on areas where there's no civilian population. So we have to think about uh, practical considerations, which allow us to realize that, unfortunately, the most dangerous thing that anybody can do is to cross the street, uh, especially if you're texting or uh, buying and selling Bitcoin at the same time. Which you shouldn't be doing anyway. Correct. So next question for you. We hear a lot about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I recently became familiar with something called post-traumatic growth. And the question is, if you can define each of those phrases for us, what they mean. Because right now we're in the midst of the trauma, and these concepts are talking about what will be as a result of the trauma. When we come out of the trauma, PTSD, will the trauma continue with us? Or we can say PTG, post-traumatic growth, will we grow from the trauma that we're currently experiencing? And I, I guess the next question is, who falls into which of those categories? Who's going to have the negative PTSD and who's going to be able to overcome and have a growth situation coming out of the current trauma? Okay, the, those are great questions, Rabari. And I think first we have to uh, really define a few terms. Uh, one term is going to be acute stress disorder. Another term is going to be post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so 
Acute stress disorder is during the initial period, uh, specifically a, a month after a person has experienced a traumatic event, whereby they might have symptoms of intrusive thoughts, uh, dissociation, where a person feels like they're living in a fog or feel like a zombie or a robot disconnected from their uh, life and daily activities, uh, negative mood, avoidance of stressful situations, and sometimes a physiological arousal whereby uh, they might have an elevated heart rate or feel short of breath or tremulous. Uh, that is called uh, acute stress disorder. And a person can develop this based on a genetic predisposition to how the body handles stress, based on certain uh, hormones and neurotransmitters uh, like cortisol, uh, for example. Uh, a person can also have had previous life stressors that put them at risk. Certainly somebody who's had more terrible traumatic experiences is at a greater risk for responding in a way that is uh, going to get them into trouble and cause more dysfunction in their life uh, and their various relationships. Also, coping skills are important. So again, there's a genetic predisposition, there's uh, previous stressful life events, and then there's the coping strategies that a person might have. For example, somebody who deals with stress by drinking alcohol is obviously uh, lacking good coping skills. A person who deals with stress by meditating or performing a mindfulness exercise by doing cardiovascular exercise, by uh, connecting with the people that provide them with uh, good advice and meaningful uh, interpersonal support, uh, those folks are less likely to develop uh, acute stress disorder. Uh, the treatment for acute stress disorder, what do we do for people in the acute setting? Uh, really, again, we just normalize it. Right? We said it before, everybody is scared, sad, and angry right now. That's normal. Even sometimes feeling nothing is normal uh, because that's the body's way of dealing with stressful situations is to kind of take a few steps back. That's one of the ways that the brain protects itself. So we try to normalize things. And we try to also tell patients and uh, people in the community that they can expect recovery moving forwards. Uh, most people who experience acute stress disorder will not end up developing PTSD. We do a lot of what uh, we call cognitive restructuring, again, offering a perspective of safety moving forwards, uh, letting folks know that most likely they will survive and move forward to a happy, healthy, and a productive life on which their trajectory prior to these traumatic events uh, had been headed. Um, most people don't need medication, and uh, there's not really an indication for psychopharmacology beyond symptomatic relief in most cases. So then we have PTSD, which is uh, the long-term sequelae of traumatic events based on uh, genetic predisposition, the severity uh, of trauma, and uh, the lack of high-quality coping skills, relationships whereby the body experiences uh, fear and trauma through uh, hyperarousal, a stressed-out cardiovascular system. The person experiences psychological distress, withdrawal from situations, uh, inability to interact in certain situations, and uh, difficulty uh, processing, essentially, the trauma that they went through. Obviously, people who have a history of depression, anxiety, substance use, uh, or even a previous history of PTSD are at a great risk. So that's, we've covered acute stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder so far. So let me give you just one quick, uh, well, unfortunately it won't be that quick, but hopefully it'll be at least a productive few moments about how we can prevent 
the development of PTSD. And then, and then after we'll go on to the growth. Growth. Okay, very Which is, because uh, so, we want to end up positive. So what you're talking about now is how can we deal with the current trauma? And there's not only trauma from the war, it's also from anti-Semitism. There's other trauma going on throughout the world, especially for Jews. So Trauma being we... forced to go to davening and not to put your hands in your pockets unless you might get potch. Uh, all sorts all of types traumas. of all types of traumas. Okay, very good, very good. So, so the the question then is, how do we deal with when we're in the boiling pot? In the trauma right now, how we can process things, how we can adapt things, how can we? So, so I'll give you seven ideas and concepts that are helpful for uh, people who are experiencing acute distress, that if they can keep these in mind, it's likely that they will be able to avoid developing full-blown PTSD. Uh, the first one is family and community support. So maintaining constant contact uh, with your loved ones and friends uh, and having the support that you need from important people in your life. Uh, related to this is the second one, which is talking about it. Don't, don't be afraid to disclose the trauma. You haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing to be embarrassed about by definition. Uh, survival guilt is something that our brain does to us. We don't need to feel bad about the fact that uh, other people have it worse potentially than we do. So somebody asks you how you're doing, you can say, I'm terrible. It's okay Bar- to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. And we have to feel uh, honest with ourselves that when we don't say that, we put ourselves at risk of other maladaptive coping strategies. And frankly, people won't know that uh, we need their help. And Nebuch, for all of our wonderful spouses, siblings, parents, uh, children, aunts, uncles, the Ganser Mishpacho, who really would love to help us out in any number of ways. I think, again, positive reframing is so important. Uh, I tell my patients, you are a survivor. You are not a victim. Yes, this is a terrible thing that's happened to you that you did not deserve, but you are a survivor of it. And that's number three. Positive that's reframing. number three. Number four, again, staying optimistic. Uh, you using positive emotions, using laughter, uh, not being afraid uh, to smile. Number five is spirituality, to find meaning in the trauma. That's that's probably easier in many ways for uh, a large percentage of the listeners to this podcast, is uh, we have a Kaddish Baruch Hu. Am Yisrael lo lefechid, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. We have the Abishter uh, behind us. Uh, they say about the Klausenberger Rebbe's, that's all uh, Rav Weiss told me that... Rav Asher Weishlita told me that uh, the Klausenberger Rebbe always said, what a terrible thing for a person to say, ugh, Dreibishter Vetfiren, ugh, you know, Einod Milvado, that's all we got. He said, no, Einod Milvado is the greatest possible thing that we could have. That was what the Klausenberger Rebbe taught us coming out of uh, the ashes of the Shoah, is we have a Shem. This is amazing. We have the Koach. We are survivors. Number six is to give back. Uh, helping people in their own healing process is very important. Uh, survivor groups, support groups. Uh, we see the power of this uh, in uh, the field of addiction with Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step groups, whereby people know they are not alone. People know that other people have experienced the same feelings, and people can hear that other people have survived. That What a gift to give to another person to say, I understand you. And then the last one, again, is to stay strong, to hold the belief that you can manage your feelings and cope. Um, sobriety, 
yeah, we need that cardiovascular exercise. My goodness, that's a great way to process stress and stay resilient. Mindfulness and meditation. Uh, again, we have great people out there like Dr. Yoni Feiner and uh, Rav Benji Epstein uh, teaching our community about mindfulness and meditation. And then, of course, uh, therapeutic interventions, uh, EMDR, CBT, other skills-based interventions, along with the social support of our community. That's therapy. Therapy. Yeah. yeah very so... I would encourage everybody not to be afraid to ask for help. Uh, there's great organizations out there in our community, whether it's Relief Resources, uh, Rabbi Orenstein, Rabbi Babad, uh, Rabbi Svigluck of Amudim, uh, many other organizations, uh, Mrs. Klapman from Mask. If a person needs help, uh, please don't be afraid to call one of those wonderful organizations or any of the other ones uh, for anonymous support. Uh, most of these organizations are open 24 Seven, because it is a mitzvah to ask for help. You have to take care of your neshama and your goof, uh, even on Shabbos or Yantav. Right. Now, now we've been talking about avoiding the negatives. Oh, let's do the positives. Let's do the positives. Let's do the positives. So Post-traumatic let's, growth. How do we grow from Let's do it, baby. Uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, again, we can hopefully not use too much Friedrich Nietzsche and whatever uh, doesn't kill you makes you stronger or, you know, the no pain, no gain type stuff. But we can also uh, source it back to Ben Heihei, Zechrona Lavracho, who says, uh, Lefum Sara Agra. Depending on how much we suffer, that's how strong we're going to get. Think about all these amazing Yom Tov, uh, Yom and Tovim that we have, uh, whether it's Pesach after Mitzrayim, or whether it's Purim after Persia, whether it's Hanukkah after the Greeks. Uh, we get all these wonderful things. You tried to kill us, you did not succeed, and now we have a lot of fun food. So, uh, we have the ability to grow as individuals and as people. Most of the amazing people that I have met met in my life who I respect tremendously are people who have experienced tremendous adversity in the course of their lives. Uh, my Rosh Kolo, Rabbi Naftali Biershlita, was a Yassim at a very young age, and he said this allowed him to know what it feels like for a person to be missing the love of their parents, and that gave him the kohos to be such a tremendous leader uh, in, in Boston, uh, in that community where I grew up. Uh, we are lucky to have some amazing people who are, frankly, amazing because of what they dealt with in their own lives. Some commentators explain seven times the tzaddik will fall, get up. It's the falling that made them into the tzaddik. It's not just falling once, it's falling, frankly, seven, seven times. times. This is serious saurus that allows a person to uh, end up being the incredible person that they are. Most of the great addiction professionals have dealt with addiction themselves or have people in their families that dealt with uh, addiction and have used those experiences to become the leading clinicians in the field, uh, just as an example. Uh, I'll tell you now my favorite uh, story about uh, Rabbi Dr. Tversky's Zitzal, because he was really the Rishon of uh, Brios and Nefesh in our community. And uh, Rabbi Tversky told me a number of times that his favorite uh, drusha that he ever gave was about how lobsters grow. So what's the story about how lobsters grow? Uh, the Rav Zitzal was uh, waiting at a dentist appointment and picked up a National Geographic magazine with the yellow border and everything in front of him in the dentist's office and started to read, uh, how do lobsters grow? Thinking to himself, I don't, what do I care how lobsters grow? Then thinking to himself, what do I care about how lobsters grow? Uh, my saboracious, I got to find this out. So he read about it. And as it turns out, uh, lobsters have a soft goof on the inside of their hard 
lobster-colored uh, shell. And what happens is that as the inside grows, the inside of the lobster scoop pushes against the outside of uh, the shell. And that stress tells the shell time to fall off. And then a new shell will grow uh, during that time. And it's a bigger shell. So the lobster is able to actually get bigger as a result of stress. If the lobster never felt the stress of the goof pushing against the shell, the shell would never fall off and it would never grow again and allow the lobster to become a mature giant lobster that's apparently delicious for some people or gross for others. But one way or another, it's a gonster animal now as a result of the stress that it felt. So the Rav said that this is our story as well. If we go running away from stress, if we never force ourselves to feel a bit uncomfortable, if we don't see the Nisyonas that the Abishur has given to us, we're never going to allow ourselves to grow. If we never experience any stress, we might live what seems like an idyllic, boring life, but we'll never achieve our true greatness. This is nes lehit no seis. These are tests to allow ourselves to grow. Uh, we know that Akadosh Baruch Hu gave Avram Avinu uh, 10 tests, not because he hated him, but because he loved him and he wanted Avram to reach his full potential. And I believe that that's something that I've seen in my own life. Many of my patients, uh, who are the most incredible people, are the people who frankly had the most difficult lives. Uh, Rabbi Tversky Zitzal again said that he, the only people he trusted uh, with some tongue-in-cheek uh, were addicts in recovery. He said, my doctor is an addict, my lawyer is an addict, my accountant is an addict, my dentist is an addict, obviously in recovery, because these are honest, true people who are very dedicated to self-growth, and he felt that these were the best people to help him along the way. Now, he says a similar thing on uh, Madison Avenue, the advertisement of contented cows. And he says, cows should be contented, but people, they should not be contented. They grow through pain and sorrow. It, exactly. And I, and I would say one Kiddush uh, that I think is important on the lobster story, we have to remember that when the lobster sheds its shell, that uh, it's soft. It's actually vulnerable. It does not have when a shell. When it doesn't have the shell. Taka during that time. So that's when the lobster will crawl uh, into a crevice. That's when the lobster will go uh, into a little cave and say, I know I'm struggling right now. I know I'm vulnerable right now. Now's not the time for me to take on the world. Now's the time for me to recuperate, gain strength, learn from this. And Taka, this is the time when people should not be afraid to ask for help and should not be afraid to say, now is not the best time for me to go and take on the world. I have a patient who had confirmed kills during the current uh, war, a soldier, uh, who is a uh, infantryman who had confirmed kills during the war and uh, many acts of tremendous courage. Um, and unfortunately, there were people in his platoon who were injured. And he called me and he said, Doc, I'm not going back. Uh, they told me I don't have to go back. Uh, a lot of people were injured. And unfortunately, some of my brothers in arms were killed. And uh, I'm not going to go back. And I said, uh, are you not going back because you're scared? Or are you not going back because you feel you've done everything that you can do? And maybe you don't have the same cojos right now. He said, I feel like I did everything that I need to do. And I said, uh, are you concerned that if you go back, you won't be as effective as you want to be? He said, I am. I said, then you probably should go back because, frankly, you'll be a liability. And he said, I'm not going back. And he said, and that's probably the bravest thing that I've done is to know where I'm actually at. Oh, that's fascinating. Time. So it's, it's really a Kiddush because it's the opposite of what one might think. But really knowing yourself and appreciating your situation, there's nothing braver than honesty with oneself. And it's kind of like being on a plane and they say, put on your own oxygen tank before you put it on somebody else's. 
if we're not taking care of ourselves, uh, we will do a poor job of taking care of anyone else. Dr. Friedman, this may be a subset or a continuation of the prior question. Looking at images from October 7th and there afterward, even reading... Yeah, I'm going to cut you off. Absolutely not. Uh, don't don't stop, look at that. Absolutely not. Stop checking news. Start helping Jews. We're not looking at psychological terror of our enemies. We're not uh, playing into that game. We're also not going to expose ourselves to the equivalent of horror pornography. Uh, that is dangerous to our brains, and that is stuff that doesn't help us to be the kind of productive people we want to be. We can get uh, good objective news about what we need to know and how we can best help our people and help ourselves without seeing terrible images hearing all of the traumatic information. And how about the news? Looking at all the news? Well, I would uh, choose my news sources judiciously, uh, similar to all situations, but uh, I think that there are some good resources out there. So the uh, news source that I have found is very helpful for myself and a number of my patients is called Tansit HaChadashot, which provides uh, regular updates throughout the day in Hebrew I believe in Russian and certainly English, uh, about facts. And Tamsid is short. Exactly. Summary. So this is a brief summary of what you need to know, as well as a positive thought at the end to allow us to continue to feel positively about our situation. Because frankly, again, there are so many things that are amazing within all these tragedies. Uh, we are not short of Nisim and Niflaus. Good Aitza, good Aitza. How about, we've been talking about as Yechidim, as individuals, and how to handle trauma, and to hopefully ensure that it won't be so traumatic thereafter. How about as a Tzibor? How can we look at this as a growth opportunity together? And maybe if we can call from any traumatic periods in history. Some people have come out of the Holocaust swinging and others did not. And uh, maybe that would be a parallel for us. How is it Seabor? That was individuals, actually. So as it Seabor, how can we come out and view this as a growth opportunity and time that we can uh, improve as a cloud? This uh, an, another great question. Uh, again, I think we have to keep a historical perspective because there's nothing new under the sun, and these are not new experiences. Uh, our Israeli neighbors who were born in this country, Rabari, uh, remember the Intifada, and they remember uh, the Yom Kippur War, and they remember the Six-Day War, and some of our neighbors remember fighting in the War of Independence. Uh, I was Zohei to meet a fellow by the name of Ezra Yachin, who fought against the British as part of the Lehi. So we have to keep historical perspective that the Jews will continue. Uh, the Babylonians are out, the Persians are out, the Assyrians are out, the Greeks are out, Spain's economy is pretty rotten, and Germany is no longer a world power, and we will persevere keeping that historical perspective doing the things that historically have strengthened us, connecting to our spirituality, connecting to our roots, connecting as a people. Uh, the most beautiful experience that I've had during uh, the past few months was without a doubt, uh, I was with a friend of mine, uh, Rabbi Yossi Goldberstein, who runs a Moodim, and uh, we were having a cup of coffee, thinking about how we could, as a team, try our best to support the community. And across from uh, the coffee shop where we were drinking our espresso, we uh, saw a tattoo parlor which was being opened. And at this tattoo parlor, 
the two fellows who were walking and who both looked like ultimate fighters, you know, muscle-bound, uh, illegal steroid-injecting uh, folks from the former Soviet Union, were tattooed up their heads and necks. I mean, it was intense. Uh, some of the imagery, flaming skulls, uh, all sorts of very intense, unpleasant stuff. And as they're opening up the store, you look and these guys are wearing brand new pairs of tzitzis. <laughs> and I thought to myself... If I appreciated my tzitzis as much as these guys did, we would definitely have a sheikh right now. So I think finding those moments, finding those shared ability to connect to our fellow Jew, uh, appreciating the beauty and the historical perspective is so important right now. Uh, getting involved in chesed, giving, is the best way to get. We all know that. Uh, you know, it's so much more fun to give your wife an anniversary present than it is to get whatever she's given you. Uh, not because, heaven forbid, bit our wives will get us bad anniversary gifts, but, you know, it's just so much fun to give. Well, who loves uh, the child more? Uh, who loves the parent more? Uh, certainly, it's uh, the parent loving the child, because we give so much to our children. Hopefully, our children appreciate that, and we end up having a good relationship with them, but it's about giving. That's the currency of relationships. So, I think the more that we give to Klai Israel, the stronger we feel connected to Klai Israel, and the more historical perspective we're able to have in order to succeed through these challenges. That is great inspiration to continue doing what we see in Kali's show and to increase those Yechidim not involved yet. Get involved. The more that we can give, the better. Dr. Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure speaking with you. It's absolutely a tremendous achos, uh, Rabbi. I, I have no words for how inspired I am for the positivity and the rational approach to uh, Judaism and the uh, issues that our community faces. Uh, frankly, Headlines has always been a tremendous voice for helping Claudia Israel to help themselves. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for your kind words. Joining us now is Mrs. Batya Wadowski. Mrs. Wadowski is a BSW. She is also a CBT therapist. She is a volunteer with Hosen, which is the psychotrauma unit of Igor Atzala. So Igor Atzala is divided up between the EMTs that help people when they have physical issues, and Hosen is the psychotrauma unit when people have psychological and other related issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So if you can walk us through to start with, because Hosen is obviously less known than the other wing of Hatzalah, because Hosen is newer. What does Hosen do? So we give psychological first aid in the field in traumatic situations. Um, so in our day-to-day -day lives before all this war started, um, it was, uh, you know, in, in car accidents, suicides, um, CPRs, we address the emotional and psychological needs of family members, witnesses, bystanders in traumatic situations. Um, and we go on field. Um, and all this, and th the goal is to try and prevent um, PTSD and other symptoms that can come up um, yeah. in the future. And to that, the functionality. Does Hosen go immediately when there's a call call to Atala for a car accident and the like, or if only there's a need, then there's going to be a second. Only if there's a need. Only if there's a need. Mm -hmm. so, so who has Hosen been ha helping since October? Uh, the whole world changed at October seventh. So what's Hosen been involved with since then? How are they helping people? Who are they helping? What's what's uh what's Hosen's focus at this point? Right. So if I would try, maybe I'll try and divide it up to two categories. Um, so we, we had different things that we did, different types of intervention, interventions that we did with the public. Um, so that's, I consider that like civilians and soldiers, um, families, right? So, so 
those people. And then there were also the interventions that we did with our own um, EMTs and volunteers. Um, so in terms of the public ones, um, already on the day of October 7th, um, we had volunteers on the phone with families um, who were in their bomb shelters and um, they were providing support and trying to help them um, throughout that, that terrible, terrible time while they were hours in the bomb shelters. Um, so they were doing things like that. We also went to hospitals. I personally went to a hospital on Simchastora and I was treating soldiers and civilians that had been injured. So we did those those types of interventions as well. And then from October 7th and onwards, we had a continuous, kind of like a hotline. People were able to call and get assistance from us. So again, whether it was soldiers, whether it was also other first responders from other um, from other organizations, we also tried to help them as well. Um, so we were really trying to just be there for whoever needed us. We were uh, we would come and, and help um, uh, the police sometimes asked our, they asked us to, to assist them when they were about to tell a family about the loss of a loved one. So that was another type of intervention. So we were really just trying to uh, be wherever we could for people. And another thing that we did was we went to hotels as well, uh, people that had been evacuated from their houses and, and went to hotels. So we went there as well in order to help them, to support them go through go through that terrible time as well. So, so that was what I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of anything else without So we were really just trying to be anywhere and everywhere we could be. For the- that's everywhere. That's everywhere. That's really everywhere. I mean, starting on October 7th to mobilize so quickly and be there on the phones and in person, that's uh, that's that's really tremendous. And Simcha Stara, when we really didn't have a concept of what was going on. So what are the type of things that you've dealt with, that you're continuing to deal with October 7th, people sitting in bob shelters, that's immediate trauma. That is horrific. And that's dealing with people who are absolutely in panic, I would think. Dealing with people who are in hotels is a different type of trauma that they're going through. So walk us through what are the type of things that that you've seen? What are the most challenging for Hosen to deal with? And just give us a sense of what's going on. I think just the fact that it was such, uh, it, it was a huge event. I think also the fact that we're all, I, I think we're all kind of sort of traumatized. We were all going through it together. We weren't only assisting other people. We were also, we, we were also experiencing it as well at the same time. So obviously um, all of us in, in different degrees, but all of us know people that have been affected by it. Um, know people who are in the army, know people who, who were killed. So aside for also assisting the people themselves who, who are immediately immediately affected by it, there was kind of this feeling of, of, of all of us, all of us needing the assistance. And that's also something that I think gave us strength as well, meaning we all kind of felt like we were in the same boat and um, and helping each other through it. And something that maybe I'll, I'll touch on as well is the help that we were giving to our EMTs and our other volunteers, because um, they really saw horrific things um, that day and also the following days, obviously. Um, and it was really important to us to make sure to give them all the support that they need. Um, so from October 7th till today, we're still providing writing phone calls, some people, whoever needed longer term assistance, and we're giving them therapy sessions, um, anything really that they need, and we're assessing all their individual needs. Um, so I think that was another thing that was uh, very important and also something that made us uh, unique, um, I think, to other organizations or um, other people, meaning we were really from, from the get-go. That was something that was very important to us to provide that support for our volunteers. Right, absolutely. And let's talk about you personally. Do you have a specialty? Have you personally been involved in specific areas of help or if it's more whatever call comes in, whatever need comes in, that's what you handle? Um, Personally, it was whatever was needed. I will say that what I what I did was mostly with so as I mentioned I went to the soldiers and and civilians um, in the hospital um, on October seventh that was something that I did aside for that I also except for the the phone calls with the EMTs there was a, a central field dispatch 
um, area that United Atala had created. So I also went there a few times in order to be with the EMTs before they went on calls and when they came back to the field to support them as well. And I went I went to a mother and um, who, who whose son was injured. So I went to her house and I tried to provide her as much support as I could, provided therapy sessions for, for some people who were affected by it. I don't feel like there's a specific uh, a specific field, but really wherever wherever I felt like I could help, I tried to. I think so. You are very good. So is there anything from a psychological perspective that you've been surprised about since October 7th that you've seen? I didn't expect that. Something that's a recurring issue that you're very surprised about. Maybe that they didn't cheat you when you were studying social work. So I'll address that question in two ways. In terms of something that surprised me as a social worker and as someone who's been trained in trauma and trauma interventions, I'll say that usually when we give a trauma intervention on field, some of the tools that we use is being able to tell people that the event is over um, or else that they're in a safe place now. Um, and that was something that we quickly learned we couldn't do on October 7th, um, meaning we couldn't tell people that it's over because it's not over. <laughs> and we couldn't tell people that they're in a safe place now because the safe it, the safest places um, had been taken over. So... So that that was a that that was a shock, and I feel like we needed to really um, change the way and the, the way we we intervened, and we we slowly learned it. And I remember I personally I remember just kind of just saying it offhand. I said it to one of the soldiers that I was with in the hospital. I I said, "Well, you're in a safe place now. You're in the hospital." And he said, "Well, I was on a base with." lots of soldiers and with all the ammunition you could think of and we weren't safe and the terrorists took over the base do you think the two guards outside are any better good and, point and it was a very good point and so i realized and then and then after that i also heard of other people who had said wow we really needed to change the way we spoke to people and just and, and really think about it because because just the usual the usual things that you can tell people or promise people weren't relevant in that moment so what you can say is in this moment we're safe. In this moment, that specific, that specific event is over. We don't know what other events could come, but that specific event is over. But that was really a, a learning curve that I feel like I went through. And the other side that I wanted to say is maybe it didn't surprise me, but something that I feel is very beautiful and heartwarming is how at the same time, if I go back to those soldiers who, who I was with, even though they'd been injured and even though they'd seen terrible things, um, they all was very clear to all of them that they just wanted to go back in um, to be with their friends, to help them. And it was such an amazing thing to see and be a part of. And then not, not only that, also all the volunteers that have been, uh, all the volunteer work that's been done, um, all the chesed. Um, so it's not surprising at all. I knew that Amisrael is, is that amazing. But um, but still, just to see it and to see how the unity in Amisrael and to see how much everyone just wants to do good for everyone else, that was very beautiful. Very nice. Just a follow-up question. We've been talking a lot about dealing with people who have experienced trauma. And that's a lot of people, obviously, could be people that were displaced from their homes, people that were close to the border. <laughs> really, it comes in all shapes and sizes throughout Israel and the world today. But I don't want to talk about them right now. How about the others that are encountering with them, engaging with them, dealing with them? Is there something that people should be saying? Should they raise the issue? How are you doing? How are you dealing with the situation? Should they agree? ignore it? And if they don't ignore it, if your advice is that they should proactively say something, what would be something that's appropriate and sensitive to say? So it, um, often when we approach interventions in trauma, it depends you know, how soon it is after the trauma, but I'll just give some general guidelines. Part of the, as part of the guidelines, I think it's important to, under to understand what trauma does. So the first effect of trauma that we know is that it often makes people feel very alone. And so therefore, something that's very helpful is to tell people that they're not alone, to tell them that you're there for them. Now, what that means for every person can be very different. And so 
And it's very important to, to be open to whatever they need you to do and just be there for whatever they need and not to push and not to you know investigate or ask too many questions. Just to say, I'm here, I'm with you. You're not alone. Whatever you need, I'm here. Um, so I think that's uh, something that, that, that would be very um, important to remember. The other thing that we know is that Trauma causes a feeling of loss of control. The person feels like everything is, is, isn't is in his control and he can't do anything about about it. And therefore, it's very important to constantly be giving the, the, the person who's affected the feeling that they're in control. And a very useful way of doing that is by giving them choices and not deciding for them what the next step is, but asking them what they think the next step should be. Um, is it going here or going there? Do you want to call someone? If you want to call someone, who, right? So constantly a- asking them and giving them the choices and giving them the control back. So I think that's the other thing. A third thing that maybe I would suggest would be that obviously trauma causes a person a lot of distress and the distress can often come from um, feeling like they, they can't do anything about the situation, right? And um, it's connected to the control aspect, um, as well as feeling that they, they're not able to do anything meaningful. Um, and therefore, giving someone a meaningful job, giving them a feeling that they're able to affect uh, the situation that they're in is also very helpful. Um, you know, sometimes we feel like maybe we should give the person a day off and just let them rest. Um, when really staying active and doing and doing something that's meaningful can be important. Another thing that that's important to understand about trauma is that it disrupts the the the, the feeling of continuity. Um, right. So once a person has experienced a, tra- a traumatic um, event, often they'll feel like there was the their life their life before the event and their life after the event. So it's important to kind of bring the two together and to be able to create some sort of a narrative. Right. So there was there's a story here. There was before the trauma, during the trauma, and after the trauma, and creating one one continuous story out of it. And the the last thing that maybe I'll mention is just remembering that um, either the event has already ended or that it will end. Meaning, you know, when we talk about the war, uh, right, it's very hard. It's a continuous event. Um, but we know that it'll end. We don't know when it'll end. We don't know how it'll end. But we know that at some point it'll end. And also with specific events, if the event ended, then it's very important to just constantly say it's over, right? So now now we have other things to deal with, but that specific event is over. One other thing that just came to mind is that often right after the event, you know, people uh, want to be asking about feelings and, you know, it must be, and they say how hard it must be, um, et cetera. And it's actually very important to, it, it can be very overwhelming when people are constantly talking about feelings and it can actually be important to, to, to bring the conversation to cognitive, the cognitive aspects of things, right? So asking uh, con- um, concrete questions, um, not getting to too much into feelings right after the event, that can also be an important tip. So for example, on that last point, oftentimes people ask, how are you doing? That would probably not be the best question then because the person is doing terribly. So to avoid that question. That can also be very overwhelming, right? It can be very overwhelming. So I, I think it depends. It depends also on the relationship that you have with them. It depends how how long after. I think right after a person has, has gone through a traumatic event, what are they supposed to answer to that question, right? <laughs> like terribly, I, I, I'm not sure what that question, um, how, how much it helps. And so just say, you know, I heard so-and-so happened. I just want to let you know I'm here for you. And then if they want to talk more about how they're doing, then they can. And otherwise, you know, you're leaving it up to them. And that's where um, I think the choice comes back in. That, that sounds like very, all of that sounds like very wise advice, really wise advice. So what, one more question for you. What, what do you see as some of the potential, not definitively, but potential longer term consequences of the war on the psychological health of, let's say, soldiers or those displaced from their homes or those with relatives in the army and anyone else? What, what do you think uh, we could be seeing, unfortunately, going forward? 
So as I said, this event is very, it's very much a, a, un- a unique one <laughs> and not in a positive way. It's very different to anything we've ever experienced and had. So it's hard to, in the same way that we needed to re uh, reevaluate the way we treat trauma. I think all, I think the way that we will, will see it um, also affecting us in the future could change. And I think it's hard, it's hard to, to know uh, because of how different this event was. But having said that, we, what we do know is that resilience is is that is the default. <laughs> it costs in the, the the ability to to get back to yourself. That is the default. Most people are able to get through a traumatic event and not even get through it. Now there's even um something called post post traumatic growth, uh, which is not even to get through the trauma, but really even grow from it and and aside alongside the pain. And and although lots of people, you know, th- there's a bit of a machloket whether you can compare between this and the Holocaust. Um, I won't get into that, but even from the Holocaust, we see how there was post dramatic growth, right? There there was a lot of pain unimaginable, but there was also Medinat Israel. Israel was built from it and 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 people did it. They got through it. So I think in the, in the same way we can see that also now people are the the amount that they're doing and the 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 strength that we see in people. So it doesn't erase the pain and it doesn't mean that that any but but I do believe that that resilience is the resilience and growth is the default. Um, I don't I don't know if it's relevant. I just thought of it as I was speaking, and I feel like maybe it'll um, add to the post traumatic growth. Not as, aside for being in the psychotrauma unit in Fussen, I am also a social worker in Schneider and Schneider Children's Hospital in oncology there. And Schneider had accepted a lot of the kidnapped children, a lot of the kids that had come back. And something that uh, was said continuously throughout the interventions that were being done with those children was that uh, day by day, you could see how the kids were getting back to being kids. If in the beginning, they were very close, they didn't want to speak to people or some of them did, some of them didn't, but um, they had a harder time Then day by day, they could really see how by each passing day, the kids were getting back to being kids. So I think that's part of partly also the, the kind of magic the kids have. But I think even just in that, you can see the how resilience really is a default, how they, it doesn't erase what happened to them, and they'll definitely you know they're they're they'll definitely need the help and support that they need to get through it. But but by each passing day, they they are getting back to themselves. That's beautiful. Post traumatic growth and Amir Tishem, that should be a bracha for Klali. So the trauma is there. The trauma is ongoing, but Amir Tishem, we will get out of this phase and it will be post trauma. And Amir Tishem, from the trauma, we can leverage, leverage tremendous growth as we are doing right now, and that should only continue. I want to thank you so much. You should continue with your Avodas HaKodesh. You're doing such important things for Kalal Yisrael, and you, you and all Chosen should continue doing it. It's such a necessary need, and it's great it was recognized by Yichud Atzala, and you should continue doing as you are doing. Thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you for having you, me. Shalom Aleichem. This is Ari Wasserman. Retaking the mic, we have covered so much ground. We've covered Halacha, Hashkafa, psychology, current events, and even politics. And I just wanted to highlight a few things which came up, which really resonated with me, some lessons, some important messages that hopefully we can incorporate into our lives. Let's start out with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. First, a point about him personally, he loves Jews, and I love that he loves Jews. And that's such a wonderful thing, something that we should all emulate. He spoke about the current sentiment throughout the world through Klal Yisrael, and he did say there is sadness, there is certainly grief, but that coexists with resilience. And resilience is something that is part of our DNA. We have seen it historically, 
every time there has been a trauma, a calamity that we have had in Kalal Yisrael, it brings a resurgence. And in Mirza Hashem, we will see the same thing with all of the problems that we have right now with the war anti-Semitism. In Mirza Hashem, we will rebound in a very significant way. And the last point, Hashem is always with us, even in our pain, or maybe especially in our pain. We actually see that at the beginning of Karsha's bow. It starts out with saying, Vayomar Hashem al Moshe Boel Paro, and the Kutzka Rebbe says, Boel Paro, Kaddish Baruch Hu says to Moshe Rabbeinu, come to Paro. It should have said, Lech el Paro, Moshe Rabbeinu, go. Go, have this meeting with Paro, go tell him something. And the Kutzka Rebbe explains that, in fact, Boel Paro is absolutely the proper language because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm not sending you, I'm going with you. And wherever you go, I am with you as well. Same thing obviously applies with Kalal Yisrael. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is always with us through all the difficulties, especially in the difficulties we have to know, Bo. It's not Lech. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is absolutely with us. Let's move forward to Dr. Jacob Friedman. The lobster story that he related from Rabbi Dr. Avraham Tversky was so perfectly on point. How we can experience pain and grow from that pain. So often we try to shun pain. We try to avoid difficulties. We try to avoid being out of our comfort zone, but going out of our comfort zone, as uncomfortable as it may be, is the true way for growth. That story, the lobster story, so impactful. I think it's worthy of Hazara. So let's actually hear it directly from Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky Zatzal. There's something I want to tell you about uh, the stress and how we have to look at stress. Okay, and I think it's an important thing because uh, many people have told me from my lectures it's the one thing they remember. Okay, I was sitting in a dentist's office and looked at an article that said, "How do lobsters grow?" Well, I don't care how lobsters grow, but I was interested in it, and it points out that a lobster is a soft, mushy animal that lives inside of a rigid shell. That rigid shell does not expand. Well, how can the lobster grow? Well, as the lobster grows, that shell becomes very confining. Right? And the, kind of the lobster feels itself under pressure and uncomfortable. It goes under a rock formation to protect itself from predatory fish, casts off the shell, and produces a new one. Well, eventually, that shell becomes very uncomfortable as it grows, right? Back under the rocks. Good. And the lobster repeats this numerous times. The stimulus for the lobster to be able to grow is that it feels uncomfortable. Right? Now, if lobsters had doctors, they would never grow because as soon as the lobster feels uncomfortable, goes to the doctor, gets a Valium, gets a Percocet, feels fine, never gets off its shell. So I think that we have to realize is that we have to realize that times of stress are also times that are signals for growth. And if we use adversity properly, we can grow through adversity. I also love Dr. Friedman's addition to the lobster story. He said as follows that when we are without that shell, the lobster has shed its shell. When we are the most exposed, that is when we really need the most help. And that's when we need friends. That's when we may need therapists, whoever. But we should turn to help. And conversely, people should be looking 
to help us. In fact, the Makav Choshech in this week's Parsha, it says in Perak Yud, Pasuk Chav Gimel, Lo Rau, Ish Es Achiv, Kamu Ish Mitachtav, talking about the Mitzrim. Each one, they didn't see the brethren. They didn't get up. They were not able to get up from their seats even. The Chidush Erim says something so powerful. He says that the strongest darkness the worst darkness possible is when people cannot see the needs of their brethren. When people cannot acknowledge, they don't recognize, or they don't care to see that there is somebody in need, that is darkness. That is a terrible situation. And a consequence of that, if you can see the darkness the pain that somebody else is in, that person who is not looking, who can't see the pain of others, he cannot even get out of his place. He's never going to be able to grow in who he is. A beautiful word by the Chidushe Harim. Moving forward, Rabbi Aviad Goldberg, the varied and fascinating halachic questions being asked by the soldiers was really very surprising to me, so fascinating, so interesting, and difficult shilas that the Rabbanim of the Tzava, of the IDF, are dealing with. But even more so, even more so than the halachic questions that they are fielding, is the focus on keeping morale up in the army. The rabbis, the rabbanut, the rabbis in the army, focusing on the morale of the soldiers because that is so critical for success. Dancing with the Sefer Torah with those chayalim, with those soldiers who did not have a Simchas Torah, bringing a Sefer Torah up to the Lebanon border and dancing with them around an army jeep. That was such a beautiful thing. And Amir Tashem, those rabbanim should be able to continue in keeping up that morale that is so important for the soldiers and so important for all of us. And just to conclude with Mrs. Batya Wadowski, the amazing commitment of the mental health providers volunteering their time to very difficult situations. That is really difficult dealing with all of the trauma, and they are committed to doing so, and also the need to adapt to unprecedented situations. And uh, one thing that she said that uh, really resonated with me, so often we see somebody who's in pain, who is experiencing trauma, who has had a loss, and we ask, how are you doing? That's so common. And she said, that is likely, maybe not in every situation, but for the most part, that is not the right question to ask. We should just let them know we are here for you. That's what they want to hear. That's what we need to say. We are here for you. Whatever you need, I am here to assist. I just want to end off with one more vort. This is actually on Parshish Bishalach. It's Perik Tesvav, Shmos Perik Tevav, Pasuk Chavav. Pasuk says, Kolamachala, Sher Santim Mitzrayim. Akadish Baruch Hu says, All of the pain, the affliction, the punishment that I placed on Mitzrayim, Lo Asim Alecha. Klal Yisrael, don't worry, I'm not going to put it on you. Kiani Hashem Rafecha, because I, Akadish Baruch Hu, am your doctor. The Malbim is very powerful on this. He says as follows All of the afflictions that happen to Mitzrayim, I'm not going to put on you. That does not mean that a Kodesh Baruch Hu will never inflict Klal Yisrael, but it's going to be so different when Klal Yisrael has pains, has difficulties, has challenges, has makos, has plagues. It's so different from what Mitzrayim experienced. And the Malbim, and I quote in his language, when a Kaddish Baruch Hu gives plagues, when he attacks, punishes Mitzrayim, Egypt, 
Tachlis Hamaka who Kedei Lahakos Lo Kedei Lerafos. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is taking vengeance, is punishing them because they have it coming to them. It's not to enact an improvement, a refua, a healing for them. It doesn't have that purpose. It is to enact punishment upon them for what they did to Kalal Yisrael. Aval Kishamakaya Es Yisrael, however, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu does punish Klal Yisrael. When, when he does inflict Klal Yisrael, it is not in of itself intended simply to punish, to incur pain, to afflict Klal Yisrael. That's not the point of it. But it is meant to give them a refua to the unhealthy nefesh of Klal Yisrael. And he reads it into the Psukim as follows. He doesn't read it. He explains the Psukim as follows. That's the quote from the Pasuk. And he explains the Malbim. When I punish Mitzrayim, the motivation, the goal is to inflict pain, to punish them. When it comes to Kalal Yisrael, that's not the same purpose, but rather, Shani Hashem Rofecha, I am coming to give a refuah to the Holy Hanefesh. So we learn from this very powerful Pasuk and Parshas Beshalach, as explained from the Malbim, that when Kalal Yisrael has calamities, and it has happened many times in Kalal Yisrael, it is meant to be an improvement of Kalal Yisrael. It is not simply a punishment, an affliction, period, but it is something to be used by us and it's being used as a Kodesh Baruch Hu to inspire a refuah, an improvement of our acts, of our deeds, of our philosophy. Such an important message that we have. And Amir Tosem, we can leverage. That's been our topic. We have afflictions. We have difficulties. We have pain. But Amir Tosem, we can learn to use that pain as a springboard for growth, a refua of the nefesh that Kaddish Baruch Hu wants to so badly instill upon us.